G'day, mate. Forty here. I've been on something of a, an intellectual high this past week. Just been reading so many exciting books, and you know, I love that feeling where you're just, you know, you're pumping with excitement. Uh, your, your life is just stuffed with, with meaning. You can't wait to get onto the next idea, the next book, the next author to just follow your intellectual obsessions to their logical conclusion. The one downside of this is that you tend to <laughs> wake up at. 2 a.m., 3 a.m., thinking, I want to get up and I want to read the Hobbes Leviathan. And, and Hobbes Leviathan is a very fine book, but it's just too damn exciting. I mean, have you even read Hobbes Leviathan? It was published in uh, 1651. It's uh, one of the founding classics of realism. John Mearsheimer says his intellectual predecessor is Thomas Hobbes. So Hobbes Leviathan, probably the most important work ever written on a realistic approach to international relations, probably even more important than uh, Niccolò Machiavelli's The Prince. But Leviathan was subtitled The Matter, Form, and Power of a Commonwealth Ecclesiastical and Civil. Right, And Hobbes wrote all his important books after the age of 60. He lived to about age 92. Right, Much memory, or memory of many things, is called experience. Again, Imagination being only of those things which have been formerly perceived by sense, either all at once, or by parts at several times. The former, which is the imagining the whole object. I mean, you can see why I just have been totally carried away with intellectual excitement. And, uh, I mean, Hobbes Leviathan, what, what more can I say? The sovereign state, all right? Hobbes' case for the, for the total state. Right, the state is going to protect you from that very nasty state of nature where lives are short, nasty, brutish, and short. Okay. So the downside of this is that I haven't been sleeping very well. And right now, if, if I don't live stream, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because at least when I live stream, I have enough stimulus that... Uh, I'm forced to pay attention, right? Because at any moment I could say words that will forever ruin my life, right? So that's a pretty good stimulus to to stay awake and to notice what I'm saying and doing because otherwise I, I can't even summon the the energy or the will to do the most basic of exercises. Oh, Elliot Blatt, he's not reading Thomas Hobbes. He's been reading The Life and Times and Thought of that great philosopher, Norvin Hobbes. So anyway, do you remember the Flight 93 election? That was a, an essay published by Michael Anton in the spring of 2016, where he analogized the 2016 election between Trump and Hillary Clinton to the Flight 93 election, meaning if you elect Donald Trump, he might still crash the plane. But if you don't elect Donald Trump, the plane's going down anyway. So at least with Trump, we, we've got a ch chance to rescue things. And I first heard about this essay on Steve Saylor's blog, and Michael Anton entered the comments, and he said that uh, Steve Saylor was the most important uh, political thinker alive today, the most prescient uh, observer of what's going on in politics. And when I was reading the, the Flight 93 election back in, I think, spring, April, May of, of 2016. I thought this was an amazing essay. I was just so excited and uh, really excited about Michael Anton. And now from, from the hindsight of six years later, 
it does no longer seem that the 2016 election was a flight 93 election. I mean, how significant is it that uh, Donald Trump was elected in 2016 instead of Hillary Clinton? Would our situation in, in America, in life, in the world be significantly different if Hillary Clinton were elected than Donald Trump? Now, I think, yeah, it would be different. It would be different maybe 10%, 20%. So I'm a structuralist in international relations. I believe the structure of international relations, the structure of power politics has more to do with what happens in politics than any individual personality. So even if Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were elected president of the United States, America wouldn't change that radically. The American political system is set up in such a way it's really hard to make radical profound changes. So there'd be like a 20% difference, perhaps a 10% difference in what matters if Bernie Sanders were president or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So I'm not a quietist. I'm not saying, you know, turn your back on politics, ignore politics, because politics will, will still hunt you down. But I don't try to exaggerate the importance of politics and, and say, oh, this is the, the most important election in our lifetime. Notice how every election seems to be the most important election in our lifetime. So after reading Michael Anton's ridiculous reactions to the 2020 election and his spurious allegations of uh, you know, very significant voter fraud, very possibly deciding the results of the 2020 election, and it wasn't so much that point, it was the lack of supporting evidence that he assembled for his point that, that I thought, wow, this guy's not nearly the, you know, the intellectual lion that, that I thought he was. And then seeing the nasty January 6th riots on Capitol Hill and how people like Michael Anton, very possibly, and Donald Trump had laid the, the groundwork for, for that catastrophe. So I became uh, disillusioned with Michael Anton. And now I was just reading a book on the 2016 election, and it uh, gave me some new insights into that Flight 93 essay and it makes me realize that the, the apocalyptic approach to American politics is very American, right? Every election is the most important election in our lifetime. Uh, every election, you know, there's the heroic protagonist, and then there are the, the forces of evil, and uh, it, it's life and death. And this is just how American elites discuss politics. It's not how ordinary people, by and large, regard politics, but American elites often uh, regard American presidential campaigns in particular, as matters of life and death. So let's hear from some of the sharpest minds in the American political scene right now. Louis had this idea, you know, me and Godwinson talk with documentaries about you always want to convey a story, or at least he does in a documentary. You want to tell a story and, you know, you have a narrative that you want to present to people. And I think Louis came in with this preconceived notion of what he wanted it to be. He's like, I want this to be the next David Duke, the next Richard Spencer, the next white supremacist boogeyman for a new generation. I want to present this as scary and dangerous and evil. And what he was increasingly <laughs> presented with were a bunch of jokers, a bunch of fucking clowns <laughs> that he couldn't make fit that narrative so then he's like shit do i portray them as the loser angle or do i portray them as this evil you know nazi angle that i wanted to that's extreme and dangerous 
And I felt like his vision on that got a little bit muddled, for sure. I feel like he didn't quite tell a completely coherent narrative with it. And I, I don't think he was 100% sure of what to do with it. That being said, there's some incredibly funny footage in the documentary. Some amazing stuff. Um, I'll say this. Um, Nick's segments came off, I thought, a little bit better than they would, uh, to be 100% fair. I think that Fuentes, um, although he could have been a lot stronger in his views and just owned up to what he was, at times he came across a bit waffling and weak and disingenuous. He still came across a bit more coherent than I expected him to. A little bit, more, but certainly more professional than the other two fucking idiots that were in it. And if it was just Nick's segments, Any they might have come of, out okay. But for whatever reason, which at the time I questioned this and thought it was fucking insane, he let Louie go and interview Baked Alaska, you know, and go on a whole fucking IRL stream with Baked. So I can't show anything from the BBC Louis Theroux documentary on Nick Fuentes and Baked Alaska because you just get an immediate worldwide ban if you show any segment of that documentary. So that's what's going on with that. It came out about uh, a month ago. So you're saying, 40, give me some of that rich intellectual sustenance that uh, makes makes your, your show so, so exciting. Uh, so in response to his critics back in, in 20... Hey, by the way, I'm still getting compliments on my 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 new jacket. Uh, my, my new suit. I, I mean, I can't believe I bought a suit on Amazon.com for $90. I just chose medium, and it fits. Like, you're thinking, 40, that suit looks tailored to your physique. It's such a snug physique. It, it you know, shows your muscles in such a flattering light. Uh, you know, how much did you spend on that suit and the tailoring? And I, I spent nothing on the tailoring. And I think I so steadily desensitized people to what they can expect from me as far as clothes and a suit that I've been wearing the same suit to sure for the past five years that when I just show up with a new suit, I just blow people's minds. Anyway, I go to shore to connect with God, not for, not for, you know, trying to, to boost my ego. All right. So after his, his essay, Michael Anton made a more nuanced approach about what would be the consequences of a Hillary Clinton victory. There would still be a country it will not be a tyranny or Caesarism, not yet, but it will represent an irreversible triumph for the administrative state. Well, guess what? There are no alternatives to the administrative state. Does not Max Weber teach us this? I think that the greatest sociologist, the, the German dude, I mean, the, the father of modern sociology, is there ever been a more influential sociologist than Max Weber? I don't think even Emil Durkheim comes close. And uh, Oh, man, did I get muted again? Here I am. So you generally can't sue if, if bureaucrats make rulings that you don't like. And the executive branch generally can't uh, force bureaucrats to conduct themselves or to enact policies that the bureaucrats don't want to enact. 
And the, the legislative branch also struggles to have, have power over uh, bureaucrats. So everywhere in the industrialized world, you have administrative states. There are no alternatives to having an administrative state. Like, give me a first world nation. Give me an industrialized nation that doesn't have an administrative state. Right? There, there aren't any. So I don't think Michael Anton's on particularly strong grounds in his critiques. So the central fire of this 2016 essay, which was turned into a book, is on conservatism incorporated. Right? These are the conservative intellectuals who are the guise of opponents of the hijackers, but essentially acquiesce and even collaborate in their malign work. So did you see the, the movie Flight 93? There's some German tourist who, who says, no, no, we should not fight back against the hijackers. That, that would be too dangerous. We, we should just allow them to fly the plane. So Michael Anton in the Flight 93 election compares Conservatism Incorporated to these, these you know, this German tourist who says, oh, you should fight back against the, the hijackers. And how is their treasonous betrayal demonstrated itself? That the country is clearly on a trajectory in which most of what they claim to support so traditional morality, family values, commitment to public order, local communities, resistance to big government is under concentrated attack or in the process of advanced decay, and conservatives yet cannot bring themselves to act as if they believe what the Flight 93 election claims is self-evident that we are headed off a cliff. And again, I think that's vastly exaggerated. We're not headed off a cliff. Right? America is on a trajectory to be even more powerful in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years on a relative basis compared to other competing powers than it is right now. So Michael Anton claims it's logically impossible to believe that conservative beliefs are true, that the current trajectory of the culture can be maintained without obliterating everything those beliefs cherish. Now, everything takes place in time and space. So uh, conservatives, for example, they were for very much for states' rights when they wanted to oppose civil rights legislation. But in, in other times and places, they'll be opposed to states' rights in favor of a strong executive government. So many, many uh, family values, all these things that we, you know, tax cuts that we think are part and parcel of conservatism, again, depend upon time and place. So tax cuts may be of not much consideration to many right-wing movements. So those who don't accept the Flight 93 Metaphor claimed Michael Antron objectively enemies of conservative principles and values, and that some of those purported conservatives have made out personally like bandits by playing the Washington generals of American politics is a further indication of the betrayal, and that these individuals must know quite well that they are acting dishonestly. So the chat says, doesn't uh, 40 have the chat open at all times? Yes, I do, but occasionally I'm trying to develop an idea or a thought or I'm moving between various operations for a show. So like this PPP guy, I don't know anything about him. He seems to be to have a fair amount of common sense. So PPP, what does that stand for? Boris Johnson has told the nuclear industry bosses that the government wants the UK to get 25% of its electricity from nuclear power. So even Greens in Europe are recognizing that uh, we need nuclear power. So the invasion has, has forced a reckoning with reality. So we live in a much more serious world than we lived in two months ago.
And uh, you see that in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris removing their, their pronouns from their Twitter bios. Let him go interview Beardson, the fucking incel hobbit himself. And that's where it all fell apart for America first. And optically, it became totally fucked. Um, and it then, looked like a complete joke. And then there was Brittany Venti. Yeah, for no reason. Of, like, waste of a fucking eight minutes of the documentary, in my opinion. It was like, who gives a fuck about what Brittany Venti thinks? Wait, that was particularly a compelling segment. I mean, Brittany, Brittany Venti, don't, don't, don't trash Brittany Venti. She, she's absolutely adorable. Like, she, she she found a way to smuggle herself in by yeah. playing the victim. Oh, and yeah. It's so funny to watch her play the victim. I was just an innocent, oh. wide-eyed girl, and yeah. they, they threatened to rape me. Yeah. And that's where, like, you know, and that's where the most optically fucked part comes in, where they play the clip of Beardson being like, I'm going to rape Brittany Venti. I'm going to rape her. <laughs> gonna... Look at that. That's a horrible thing. I mean, I have, I have sympathy for women who are the objects of you know such vitriol. I, I wouldn't want to hear some dude talking about how how he's going to rape me. Right, that's that's a heinous thing. Right, you're saying forty, cut it out with the populism. Give us that that meaty intellectual gruel. So the symbolic key to the Flight 93 election is about demographic change in the United States because of the 1965 Heart Seller Immigration Act, which uh, opened up immigration to the United States from everywhere in the world. Prior to 1965, essentially you could only immigrate to America if you were of European descent. About halfway through the piece, Michael Anton tries to bolster the, the rhetorical excess of the parallel of the election of Flight 93, by describing three reasons why conservatives would face little chance of political success in the wake of a Clinton presidency. The most important of these describes as a ceaseless importation of third world foreigners with no tradition of taste for or experience in liberty. So that then skews the population in a left-wing direction in, and in a multicultural direction and away from traditional American cultural values and ideals. The left, Michael Anton argues, wants more such people in the country because they heavily lean left in their politics. So there is the promise of imminent electoral invincibility for the Democrats. So I think that claim is exaggerated. Plenty of uh, immigrants will, will side with the Republican Party under certain circumstances. So you saw Trump in 2020 doing particularly well with certain segments of Latinos. The ruling class seek cheap and easily manipulated labor, which open borders gives them in abundance. The mainstream conservatives who make up Michael Anton's core audience are too terrified of being accused of racism challenge the situation by calling for more restrictions on immigration they foolishly hope to gain by showing themselves on the as on the right side of history on this crucial moral element of the post-1960s american culture and politics so there i partly agree with with michael anton we should skew immigration to the extent that we have immigration in in the framework of what's to the benefit of america so if we're going to import immigrants they better have special skills that americans don't have they better be bringing something significant to the table and they shouldn't just be leeching on the welfare state. So immigrants, there are you know, significant portions of immigrants to America who take significant amounts of welfare and do not contribute back much in the tax base. So we don't need those. 
Now, few commentators recognize the full importance of this in the symbolic structure of the piece. So in the Flight 93 myth, there's a core symbolic binary driving the entire symbolic machinery that is of us and them, insider, outside, friend, enemy, American, non-enemy. Non-American. Well, the, the friend-enemy distinction can usefully be understood as the whole basis of the political. So the enemy is he who threatens to annihilate you. The entirety of the Flight 93 narrative, the identities and characteristics of the heroes, the moral meaning and terrifying difficulty of their deed, the radical malevolence of the hijackers, all this rests on the base of this binary symbolism, which is charged with the most primordial and powerful emotional energy. Well, yeah, if you want to get people to turn out to vote, you better fire up your base and see if you can do it without equally firing up your opposition's base. Here's the logic of his argument. Here are the contours of his political perspective. So it made explicit. If he'd uh, made this explicit, he might have come under critical scrutiny, which can be corrosive to the power of myth. So it helps if you can put myths out there without making them too explicit. But his essay came to clear focus for others who were able to tap into that source of primordial emotional power. Now, the response in response to critics of the Flight 93 election published a week after the piece first appeared. Michael Anton pointed again to the demographic problem, noted the brokenness of the American immigration system. I, I think uh, people on the left and right will largely agree that the American immigration system is broken and would, if unabated in short order, produce a situation in which the right was never again able to realistically compete in national election. I think there he, he is wrong. As you see, even in Brazil, you had right-wing Jair Bolsonaro taking power. of the 19 foreign visitors to the country who carried out the four hijackings on 9-11, nearly a third were in overstay status or had failed to fulfill some central requirement of their visa. Leader of the operation, Mohammed Atta, had been pulled over in a traffic stop while there was an open bench warrant for his arrest for failure to appear in court for an expired driver's license. But he was not detained because of the failure to effectively coordinate databases on immigrants with such warrants. So... I think people on the left, center, and right can agree that this is a big problem. Now, the left-wing response to the Flight 93 election was energetic. Hunter Friedersdorf, who is centrist, wrote in The Atlantic just days after the publication, he accused the author of xenophobia, and he pushed back, arguing conservatives are keepers of the status quo by definition. Well, he didn't argue why that definition was accurate. The most symbolically extreme responses from the left did not content themselves with recourse to the general tropes of xenophobia and racism, but extended it further to accuse the Flight 93 author of articulating a special fascist or Nazi perspective, which is absurd, right? Uh, Nazism died in Berlin in 1945, and uh, so did fascism. We haven't had a fascist government since 1945 anywhere in the world. Michael Gerson claimed that Michael Anton's reference to my people is functionally indistinguishable from the Nazi articulation of Volk. Oh, that's crazy. You, ha you have all sorts of uh, discussion in, in Judaism of, of essentially my people, Amcha, the, the people. So normal nationalism is nationalism for a particular people at a particular time and place. Now, a common objection in both the left and right response to the piece was a sense that the apocalypticism so that the end of the world was nigh was exaggerated and out of keeping with normal political discourse about American presidential elections. So all this talk about the most important election of our lifetime, of the last 50 years, in a generation, in a century in American history, 
But uh, this is nothing new in American politics. Right? We've had these claims going back to at least the 1990s. So we had the New York Times uh, discussing the phenomenon in the 2004 election, documenting such claims going back to the 1864 election. Well, the New York Times writer in 2011 discussing the 2012 election captured the spirit of this phenomenon. So Michael Tomaski of The Guardian wrote in 2008, 2004, many Americans, particularly liberals, fearful about a second Bush term, took to calling that election the most important of my lifetime. And it was for a while. Now this one is. And now this one is. So if we just add another, and now this one is for the 2016 and 2020 and 2024, and just add a repeat ad infinitum, right? That's, that's American political rhetoric. It is apocalyptic. The New World Order had Shane Warne killed because they didn't want Australia winning the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> had to start watching Brittany Venti, bro. My wife got triggered. People's Populist Press. Oh, that's PPP. I really didn't know anything about him, but it uh, seems to have a fair amount of common sense. Okay, so that's the broader cultural context of the Flight 93's apocalyptic pronouncement, right? That's how intellectuals talk. So in February 2016, writing in The Nation, Joshua Holland called the 2016 election the most important election of our lives. A climate scientist quoted in the article said a victory by either Donald Trump or Ted Cruz would potentially be catastrophic for the planet. A jet here in the New Republic the month before the election noted that it, the bias that every election is portrayed as the most important in the history of the Republic. But he then nonetheless wanted him to predict that a Trump victory would mean the destruction of the system. Well, Trump won and we didn't destroy the system. In the Los Angeles Times, Jamie James Kerchick argued that if Trump wins, a coup isn't possible. Voters must stop him before the military has to. Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian predicted a new age of darkness in the event of a Trump victory and described America standing on the brink of the abyss. So all these predictions and claims are obviously foolish. All right, Whether Trump won or not in 2016, it was not the end of America. Trump was in office for four years and uh, America su survived. And uh, if you hadn't paid any attention to politics over, over the past 10 years, I don't think your life would have been particularly affected by these major political swings. So the far reaches of this symbolic hyperbole are reached only in the intellectual classes, typically. Right? The general population resists these symbolic extremes. They, they may participate to some degree in the binaries. And the Flight 93 election essay acknowledges this in its category of fools. So politics is a sacred realm, especially for intellectuals in a culture that has progressively removed traditional religious pathways to the sacred from the public sphere. So we're no longer such a religious society, but we all have a need for good and evil binaries, all right? You can be the most secular atheist, and there will still be things that will strike you as objectively evil, right? It's just hardwired into us. We have a need for good and evil. And so if people can't get those needs met in religion, well, they'll increasingly get them met in politics. So for the social and cultural elite who dominate our secular educational and other institutions, it's also hardwired into them, the good evil binary. So politics has become the new religion for a large segment of the intellectual and other elite classes that have lost the religious musicality.
little less likely to go crazy with these apocalyptic political visions. So apocalypticism on the left was not limited to pre-election commentary after the election. It was widespread. So the New York Times gave a selection of writers responding to the election results on November 9. Uh, Plenty of apocalypticism, meaning the end of the world, coming from the left. Paul Krugman predicted an immediate economic freefall from which markets would never recover. That didn't happen. Viet Thang Nguyen and Denny Roderick imagined the possibility of a plummet into fascism once Paul Krugman's market collapse took place. Obviously, that didn't happen. Seth Grossman mimicked multiple Hollywood and pop music celebrities insinuating that moving out of the country might be the proper response to Trump's election. Robert Stevens announced that we could now with certainty say goodbye to the climate. And the title of Peter Wiener's piece fairly summed up the entire proceedings when the decent drapery of life is rudely torn off. Then, go beyond the New York Times, you have Eric Zorn in the Chicago Tribune expressed his serious doubts that the American experiment will survive Trump's reign. Well, I think it did. Neil Gabler wrote, America died on November 8th, 2016, not with a bang or a whimper, but at its own hand via electoral suicide. In July 2016, Franklin Foyer at Slate described Trump in the cultural mythological language that has become a symbolic functional left-wing equivalent to the cultural strategy of the Flight 93 election by Michael Anton on the right. So Franklin Foyer caught on the um, deeply mythological background in the U.S. hostility, in the U.S. of hostility to Russia, who described candidate Trump as Vladimir Putin's plan for destroying the West. Trump was in power for four years, did not destroy the West. So we have the same set of binaries, good and evil, following from the 2016 election. So you've got two apocalyptic myths, one on the right, the flight election, flight 93 election myth, and then one on the left, the Russian takeover election myth. And they're, they're remarkable. In both deep cultural realms of plumb to find terrifyingly emotional, mythical and foreign enemies, Islamic terrorists, Russian spies, to whom the political foe can be linked and thereby made the antagonist an apocalyptic mythical drama in which the very existence of the American Republic teeters on the brink and only total war leading to the utter defeat of the inhumane enemy can suffice to cover it. Joker in the ass, and he does his evil Joker laugh. It looks fucking horrible, horrible. And she's like, so at the camera, she's like, I don't know, I don't know why he would he would say that and she's like holding in laughter she's like holding you know what i mean she's like like just you could see her fucking yeah. cheeks tremble and like ah. and i'm like come Brittany, shut up like you're fucking full of shit like you know it's so ridiculous um i think i in in my view here at the keto casino and on Daka Daka in general, your channel and your previous videos before the show was fired up, uh, you have done way better coverage of the Nick Fuentes stuff. If anything, Louis should have called you. Well, if Louis had called me and I had the budget that Louis had and the footage that Louis had, I could have made it better. There's no doubt that I would have made it a better product than it actually was in the end. But I'll say this. Um, for Louis, um, <clears throat> presenting it to a mainstream audience, people that have never seen America first before, don't know anything about it. I think he did do a really good job in terms of smearing them, 
making them look fucked. I think to the average person in the UK, it, it looks and sounds insane. And to the average American, like, I don't think there's very many people that are going to look at it. At and, and I think that the Flight 93 election essay would have seemed insane to many regular Americans, but it is how the political elite, the, the cultural elite, uh, do talk in, in either direction. And the Flight 93 election was denounced by a large number of mainstream conservatives as well. So Ben Howe at Red State chastised Rush Limbaugh, who came out vigorously in support of the Flight 93 election. So he said, this is not the Flight 93 election, Rush. And then uh, others on the right spoke in remarkably Trumpian vernacular in denouncing the Flight 93 election. Ben Shapiro described it as an incoherent, mind-numbing horse S-H-I-T. Post-election 2017 May article in the New York Times by conservative writer Brett Stevens says, writing in the wake of the dismissal of FBI Director James Comey, who Stevens believed was the Trump presidency was collapsing, he he called the Flight 93's lurid imagination and unhinged argumentation with, with barely concealed disgust. He described the efforts to imply that Barack Obama was a hijacker in the United States was the equivalent of a doomed airline as vile and absurd. But he concludes his essay with the exact same symbolic move, but reversed to target Michael Anton and the Trump administration as the real agents of apocalypse. It is the mark of every millenarian fanatic to assume that the world stands on the verge of a precipice. It's the kind of thinking that has inspired, inspired extremists from time immemorial, including the people who grabbed the planes on 9-11. Maybe 2016 was the Flight 93 election. Maybe the pilots are dead. Maybe the passengers failed to storm the cockpit. Maybe the hijackers reached their target by landing on the White House after all. And there's no indication from Brett Stevens that any of this was to be read ironically. So I... In, in retrospect, I thought, you know, the Flight 93 election, that was vastly overstated. And now I realize this is just normally how we talk about American politics, how the intellectual elite, the, the, the Americans most engaged politically, that, that maybe there's just something about Americans that they're an apocalyptic people, that we're somehow uniquely drawn to this mode of, of meaning. And this may be a permanent feature of our way of conceiving and settling conflicts. Or maybe there are new developments in America since the 1960s that have brought this apocalypticism to the fore. My father did a PhD in apocalyptic, right? He did a, a PhD thesis on Daniel 814 and the investigative judgment. That was his second PhD. He did it in, in England. So I grew up in an apocalyptic religion. So the Adventism, where, where the world was always coming to an end. So apocalypticism of the sort evinced by the Flight 93 election and its opponents is not going away anytime soon in American politics. That's how the essay concludes. Right, so this is from a book that came out in 2019, Politics of Meaning and Meaning of Politics, Cultural Sociology of the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election. There's another essay in there that I liked on Steve Bannon. And he says, uh, Steve Bannon functions as a performing, performance-enhancing drug for Donald Trump. I thought that was that's a great summary. That was Bannon's effect on Trump during, during the campaign. He functioned as a performance-enhancing drug. The secret of his power over Trump and over a large swath of the American people has been his mythic poetic abilities, writing the script, setting the stage, finding the actors, 
directing the scene so effectively that anti-democratic ideas have many Americans come to seem sensible and inspiring or democratic ideas appear rational and prepared. Well, there's plenty of contempt for democracy on the left as well. They, they would not want a, a, an up-down vote on, say, immigration policies, right? There's plenty about uh, democracy that people on the left hate as well. So there are concerns about democracy on the right. There are concerns about democracy on the left. Uh, Bannon called Trump a flawed vessel, but into that striving, overheated human container, Steve Bannon poured a magical potion, a fearsome brew. Steve Bannon is a mythologist. He scripted and produced a new and pernicious political movie, and he would like to craft its sequels. In the first social performance, Donald Trump played the heroic protagonist, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Democrats, and Enlightenment ideas played the dark beast that the barking, bleached, blonde populist entered the arena to slay. Uh, Steve Bannon once confided to Variety magazine that he had a kinetic editing style that seeks to overwhelm audiences. A little bit how Ben Shapiro talks, right? If you slow Ben Shapiro down and you just look at what he's saying, it is nothing special, right? It's just as far right as you can go in conservatism and still be allowed on nationally syndicated radio. But there are no insights. There's not you know, something extraordinary or special. It's just hack work but he speaks so rapidly in such a kinetic overwhelming fashion that that many people you know regard ben as particularly smart and i do think he's smart i just don't think he really adds anything so yeah i think americans are an apocalyptic people okay let me let me share with you some of the other books i've been reading but first of all I heard from Facebook from a friend, uh, John Douglas. He said, hey, I watched the first 45 minutes of your video on Will Smith uh, slapping Chris Rock. And he said, I was waiting for you to comment about you you were slapped and punched several times when you were blogging on the porn industry. And I wanted to hear your your references to that. I didn't bring it up. And I guess I just never wanted to talk about that because it's tricky. It's perhaps why Chris Rock is not talking about it because you can very easily... to slap you around so I thought it was a Rubicon was crossed when when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock that uh, we, we've taken it as a social norm that uh, and especially an event like the Oscars you have you have a host who will make fun of people but you don't respond with, with physical violence and many of these norms of you don't respond with physical violence to feeling disrespected uh, have been under assault in America since uh, George Floyd's death. And I think, I think that's a bad idea. Now, there's nothing inevitable. There's nothing... I, I don't take the view that the speech you know, must be sacred. I think it's a good idea to have that social norm that you don't assault people for making jokes. But there's no special protection for for speakers that just woven into the inherent fabric of life, right? I'm not surprised that there were times when I was writing things that were highly provocative that other people responded by punching me 
and uh, smacking my head into a light pole and you know various other assaults and, and death threats and things like that. So I like the social norms that we construct. See, civilization, Western civilization in particular, is not natural. It's not normal. It's the product of a great deal of uh, hard work. And so we kind of assimilate these norms. It's not so much that society morally deteriorates us. Society, generally speaking, elevates us from our natural state. Our natural state is to be brutish and selfish and nasty often. And so we have developed social norms to make uh, life better. And, and now we're seeing you know, parts of civilization decaying and collapsing. And so I did not enjoy getting punched and smacked into a light pole and physically assaulted. But I wasn't so naive as to think that there would never be any physical repercussions for things I'd say. Like all my life, people have responded to things that I've said by smacking me around. So it's like complaining about terrorists. Like, oh, why can't they confront us in, in open battle? Well, if terrorists confronted the United States in open battle, they'd get wiped out. So instead, they use terrorism, right? If the Palestinians confronted Israel in open battle, they would get wiped out. So people use the weapons that are at hand and that are, that are best suited for them. I remember many pro-Israel people were saying for, for decades, oh, why can't the, the Palestinians make their case without violence? Well, last 10 years, Palestinians have done so very effectively with the boycott and uh, BDS, boycott, divest, and what, suspend BDS movement against Israel, trying to boycott Israel. It's a nonviolent movement, and uh, supporters of Israel don't like it, right? But it's the very thing the supporters of Israel were asking supporters of a Palestinian state to do for decades. Now they're finally doing it, and uh, supporters of Israel are not too happy with the boycott, divest, and uh, sanction movement. And it's a very effective anti-Israel, nonviolent movement. So people will look for your weak point. And I remember when I was writing on the porn industry or just when I've been writing on dangerous people in general, that uh, you have to be aware that not everyone is highly disciplined, that uh, some people just fly off the handle. And so you have to, you have to thread your way in life. And I like the social norm that you don't go up on stage and smack the speaker around. I think that's a really good social norm. And I think it's disturbing and dangerous to, to see this uh, social norm trashed. I don't like it particularly. And uh, I'm speaking in large part from self-interest. Right? I've, I've had a smart mouth. Uh, pretty much all my life. Uh, in second grade, the, the teacher said, Luke is always very willing to share his opinions with the class, but he needs to learn to be more considerate with the slower thinker. Well, some of the slower thinkers would just smack me around. Chat says, the act itself wasn't so outrageous, but the joke was not nearly cruel enough to warrant it. Yeah, I, I thought the, the joke was fairly mild. Let's play a little bit more from commentary here on the Louis Theroux documentary on Nick Fuentes. At least serious people, responsible adults, and go, oh, I'm interested in that. Even people on the fringes are going to go, this kind of looks fucking ridiculous. The only people that I think that this will reach and the only positive benefit for the Groypers, and I guess this is what they were after all along, mm -hmm. was to reach 12 to 13-year-old children on Discord 
uh, that are edgy, that like think Columbine shooting was really cool and shit like that. They may get some more 12 and 13 year old kids. Now, some of them in a few years may already be getting access to their trust fund. So maybe it'll pay off in that way. And maybe they'll be able to groom some like child porn from these uh, kids on Discord or whatever. I guess that whatever Beardson's into. But aside from that, I don't really see the benefit to the movement uh, of this documentary. I feel like the only purpose it ever had was to stroke Nick's ego, to make him feel like he was one of the important people. And I also start, I, I thought a lot about it, and I really start to think that maybe they're all in on it together, where this was Louis' intention, and Nick's... Okay, let's get a little commentary here from Richard and Ed on the slap heard around the actual world. Alexis Arquette pointed out Smith's history on the down low. He and Jada's mutual beard marriage. Smith's history with men ended up dead long after. Draw your own conclusions. I don't think I find whoever this is to be a credible witness. All right, you've said your piece. I'm, I'll look into it. I'm not sure I buy it. Do you have any comments on that, or should we just power through? <laughs> yeah. Um, this message is a thread to Ed. This is so. This person has given a number of messages. This is to you. This is regarding your art. This is regarding your article on the evolutionary strategy of rape. So you can check us out on Substack. Yes, we are now on Substack. So go and um, go to Substack and just Google Radix or my name or Ed's name, and you'll find it. Um, let me go yes. back here. So. Uh, regarding your article on the evolution strategy of evolutionary strategy of rape in Hinduism, there is a Hindu goddess of fertility known as um, Bahuchara Mata. Mm. This is a story of a man trying to rape her, so she cursed him with impotence and only removed the curse if he promised to act like a woman. She also cut her breast off to make her unattractive to avoid being raped again. Do these stories point out that trans women are men of such low social genetic quality that even religious stories had to be written about them, representing how transgender women are simply just low-status, exiled, or castrated men who are cursed for being male sexual predators. Also, oh, that's interesting. Also, the trans woman in India, Hijara, live, oh yeah, the trans women in India, and it's interesting, I, I've actually read an article on that, live in their own secluded Hijara-only com communities. Is this mm -hmm. a byproduct of, sexual, of a sexual mentality to form rape gangs with other like-minded rapists? Okay, there's a lot there. Answer, I'll just let answer. you take that. Right, okay. So with, with regard to the Hurjara, um, no, I don't, I, my understanding of those, of those people is that they tend to be what you would call uh, homosexual transsexuals. So they are, they are males from a very young age, and who, who from a very young age believe that they are female. Uh, they are highly feminized. And because of, I guess there's some sort of myth that it draws upon of the male or female or something, I'm afraid I don't know which one it is. Uh, um, they're able to give blessings to people. But they're, but they're also, so they, 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 they're brought in at certain rituals to give blessings, but they're also considered to be extremely unclean and on the borders of the community and, and that sort of thing. So I don't think that the Harja are comparable to autogynophilic transsexuals. The Harja are um, homosexual transsexuals. They're extremely feminine. They're extremely, um, perhaps some of them are autogynophilic transsexuals, but in general, I get the impression from interviews I've seen with them that from a very young age, they've always thought they were girls. Um, there, there, there may be some of them that are, that are, um, autogynophilic transsexual but, uh, but, but that's so that's my experience so i think the autogynophilic transsexuality is a different thing and i think that it's a it's a reflection of borderline personality disorder uh, uh, narcissism 82 percent there was one study of people that are autogynophilic transsexuals have either uh, borderline uh, uh, narcissistic personality 57 percent um or borderline personality the rest um of the 80 percent so ah comment in the chat why does ed have eye bags well i think he's got young children so most parents with young children don't get much sleep. Um, I don't think that there's a, I don't think there's, I think it's a new sort of phenomenon. I think, I don't think there's much reference. I think the nearest thing I can think of is transvestitism as opposed to transsexuality. And you do get that among shamans and people like that in certain tribes. And they tend to uh, indicate evidence of mental disorders and things like that. So they're transvestites.
uh, and and uh, there's there was there was some Native American group where they do things like smear blood on them on their around their crotches as though they're menstruating and dress up as women as part of rituals and things like this. But they also they have religious experiences, which of course correlates with being uh, neurotic. So mm. there's things like that. But no, I, I can't. I don't. I don't think that that myth is related to water guidance as transsexual. I remember I, I met this uh, one woman at a Jewish singles event and uh, started dating her, and she she ended up dropping me because I wouldn't intervene and protect her and solve her, her life problems. So she was getting into feuds with various people, and I just stayed out of it. And uh, she said, a, a real man, he steps up and takes care of these things. And if she's getting her tires, tires slashed because she's having disputes with people, no, I, I, just, uh, I just stayed out of that. So I had uh, several, no, two, two girlfriends at least who were getting into feuds, and I thought, no. I just had to keep them at arm's length and, and I very quickly viewed them as millstones around my neck. I, I don't want to be with, with a woman who's getting into unnecessary feuds and I don't want to be protecting her constantly from herself. Some degree, right, in a relationship, there's some degree of protection uh, for, for the other person. I remember I was uh, driving down the one freeway, driving north up towards Monterey and I passed a car and then I stayed in the passing lane. So I was driving in the incoming lane <laughs> straight straight ahead and uh, my, my girlfriend at the time like tapped on the dashboard and reminded me to, to move over okay so I was just unaware of what I was doing and so in any relationship you can you know both parties can point out to the other that uh, you know they're doing something incredibly stupid or dangerous or they're being insensitive or they're laying themselves wide open for, for trouble in any relationship usually you have one party that takes care of certain areas of the relationship because they're, they're more skilled. And then another party takes care of other areas of the relationship because they're more skilled in that area. But, but this idea of just coming in and, uh, and just exhaustively, you know, protecting a woman from herself or from the feuds that she's created, just like, sounds like too much bother from my perspective. Here's a, here's a bit more from Richard Spencer on, uh, the slap heard around the it, world. It's one of these things that it's kind of over-determined. And so everyone is ambivalent about it. And in some ways, it has something for everyone in it. So you could look at Will Smith slapping Chris Rock as like the return of the alpha male or, you know, uh, Scotch-Irish values of, um, you know, how dare you, sir, insult me, and all that kind of stuff. Yet, it, it's also kind of, I, I think you could also look at it as like the ghettoization of every, even Hollywood, the kind of, you know, temple of Oscars is the temple of elegance and so on. Um, you can also kind of dig deeper. Um, I had heard about this, but I, I read about it a little today, but um, Will Smith seems to be in some sort of open relationship with Jaden Pickett Smith. Um, and it seems almost like an asymmetrical open relationship where... She and the chat says, how many people has Luke glassed in his life? I didn't even know what that meant. So I looked up the slang. Glassing is a physical attack using a glass or bottle as a weapon. Glassings can occur at bars or pubs when alcohol is served and such items readily available. Of course, never. I'd never do that. And when is it justified to, to slap someone? I, I think if a, if a woman is dating someone and uh, the guy gets inappropriate, then yes, the, a slap is, is a, a good response. Also, remember there was one time, according to, to one parent, that he, he slapped his kid when his, his daughter was becoming hysterical. And he just slapped her and kind of brought her back into reality. And that's the only time it happened, according to him anyway. So I suppose there are probably extreme moments when slapping someone's inappropriate. But if 
there's there's an insult of your wife at, at the Oscars. No, I, I don't think that's the the appropriate time to slap someone. She is, you know, publicly dating younger men. He seems to keep it on the down low. I mean, who knows what's going on? Um, I don't really want to know. I've never been much of a fan of Will Smith, um, but he he obviously is a big movie star. Um, and so you could also kind of take this as you know him Will Smith kind of finally snapping, and he just can't take the attacks on his dubious marriage any longer, and he is going to lash out. Um, there's just kind of so he is a, a kind of puck. Uh, so there's just just kind of something for everyone in the scandal. But anyway, that's all I actually really wanted to say on it. <laughs> Probably one of my least interesting intros. Um, it's you know it's kind of fascinating. But, you know, I don't care that much. Um, it, it is, I don't know, I guess there's some other things I could draw out of it. I mean, even in, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, I mean, getting into scuffles at school was something that was expected to some degree. Um, that was changing by the late 90s. You started hearing um, talk of, you know. So I basically did everything I could to stay out of fights. Uh, I've never won a fight in my life. And they just seem dangerous, right? You get into a fight, you could very well suffer permanent, you know, cognitive damage. The the downsides to getting into a fight were so big, and, and the upsides seem to me to be so small. Anti-bullying and how bullying was horrible. All of this seemed to lead up to a lot of the, um, you know, trans awareness and things like that that are occurring today. Um, but it, it was a little bit more violent. I mean, if you went to a bar in some little town in the middle of the country, you could, on a Saturday night, you could pretty much expect there to be a scuffle. Um, we are now in a culture where it is just, you know, it's viewed as horrifying. Uh, and uh, John says, I think the only time it is justified to hit someone on your wife's behalf is when someone lays hands on her, but it depends on the circumstance. Like if the person is much bigger and stronger than you, if uh, you're surrounded by his friends and you have none of your own, then uh, going to war with him when what's most likely to result is that you're going to get smashed and your wife's going to get smashed, probably not a good idea. Sometimes the best thing to do is to take it and just try to get out of the situation as quickly as possible. Yes, other times it is appropriate to smash back, but it has to be well judged. Uh, to, you know, defend someone or defend your honor or to even just fight because for the hell of it. I think most defense of honor is absurd. You know, honor is a, a social construct. It, it's something that we, we make up. It's not inherent in, in the natural world. So according to Judaism, there are only three things that a Jew must uh, give up his life for. He must uh, give up his life rather than commit murder or to bow down publicly to idols or to have incest. So let's say hello to Elliot Blatt. What's going on, bro? Blessing, bro. Blessings. Um <clears throat> Interesting uh, little topic about slapping and personal violence. Um, you've, you've heard of the caning of Sumter? Sumner? Uh, vaguely, is that an American politician who got caned? Yeah. So uh, he was a uh, northern, I think he was from Boston, Sumner. Yeah. And he was an abolitionist. This is sort of Civil War times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had... Uh, you know, he had some sharp political rhetoric directed against the, uh, the Southerners. And um, I forgot his name. I can actually look it up. But one day, uh, I think he was a senator. He came into his chambers with a cane. 
and just kind of blindsided him and just whacked him, just whacked, you know, beat his beat him with a cane. And kind of like sort of a Will Smith situation. Uh, but the idea behind it is sort of interesting. Uh, when you talk about sort of Scotch Irish values and um the idea is most of the time, if you're a gentleman and you have a dispute with a, someone, you, you challenge them to a duel, right? And it's sort of a way of, it's the honorable way of fighting, right? But if you're so low, if what you've done is so low and so beneath uh, dignity, you, you sort of, have, you, you reserve, or you can honorably cane somebody you're saying that you're just not even a human being and i don't even have to abide by the the fair the rules of fair fighting it's an interesting uh chapter i i notice a big male female difference with insults because middle-class women generally speaking haven't been smacked in their lives so they get away with insulting people in a way that men know you can't do like most men have had the experience of being punched in the face and so that that makes men more polite, more, more careful about uh, not insulting people. But most middle-class women, I don't think, have had that experience of being punched in the face. And so they tend not to fight fair often. Absolutely. Yeah, it's totally observable. And I remember this firsthand at, at a company dinner. Uh, so, you know, years ago, it was a holiday party and you know, sort of a semi-formal occasion, suit jacket, whole thing. And we all pretended to be, you know, sophisticated people. And so we had this dinner and the, this, my girlfriend at the time, she just started shrieking at the wife of one of my colleagues. And the two of them just started just a complete catfight situation. So, you know, that was so, um, so shocking and horrifying. And then, you know, it, 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 that point was driven home to me that women just, <laughs> women just can shoot their mouths off and they don't expect repercussions. They don't realize And then, you know, she was trying to put me in between the two. Like I needed to, you know, it was sort of the, the woman was saying, aren't you going to restrain your girlfriend? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was so hysterical. Uh, so uh, I managed to diffuse the situation. I, I, I had a girlfriend, uh, quite a, a lefty, and she yeah. hated police. And uh, she was walking her dog in a park yeah. that was not a dog park. And so you had to have the dog on a leash. Yeah. And so she, she took her dog off the leash and she got warned by a police officer. And uh, then the police left. She took the dog off the leash. The police officer came back and wrote her a ticket. And then she just started spewing at the police policeman. And, and I shut her up. Uh, yeah. I said, you cannot, you cannot speak that way. And I apologized to the, the officer. So I, I recognize that sometimes women do need, need a man to step in and to stop them from self-destructing and to, to stop them from, from spewing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's like, you know, it's so funny that, uh, you know, it's so counter type. So, you know, you hear all of the woke stuff about women and oppression and that just no self-awareness whatsoever. Uh, yeah. 
and uh, and the design and the 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 look that you know, that gets on their face when you explain to them that they were in the wrong and they literally have no idea that they were in the wrong. You know, it's like these you can see this them just trying to process the idea and they just can't do it. So uh, but this, this men, go ahead. Well, men learn about this really. Yeah. Yeah, they learn about power really early on in life, right? And women just go through the life completely insulated from this the power, real, true, you know, forceful power dynamics, uh, because there is such a uh, taboo and a stigma associated with you know hitting a girl, right? And so they 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 get to just waltz through this cocoon of of um, uh, pseudo protection. They don't realize how dangerous the waters of real conflict are. So this, this left wing girl, Jewish girl that I was dating, she owned a pit bull. And uh -huh. so like, I'm, I'm making love to her and there's this killer pit bull, like right beside us. Sort of adds to the excitement, doesn't it? And I didn't, re I, I, I wasn't really into it. And, <laughs> and I also didn't understand why she, she was a co-owner of this pit bull with this other guy. And, and like a year later, she says, oh, he's not just, a, he's an ex-boyfriend. Okay, great. So she's in, you know, constant contact with her ex-boyfriend over, you know, care duties for this pit bull. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of, of girlfriends who are in frequent contact with their exes. No, no, it's not a good signal. Uh... And I'm not a big fan of women who own pit bulls. I'm not a big fan of anyone who owns a pit bull, particularly in a, in a big city. I mean, it, it's insane. I mean, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, they were just like little gay dogs. I mean, they were you know, absolutely harmless. But when you start going inland, you know, then, then the dogs become, or when you go into the country, then the dogs become a little meaner. Well, you know, I noticed that if, you're, if you watch you know, women jogging, it's just, the more fearsome the dog, the hotter the woman. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a direct uh, proportion there. Uh, fun times, fun times. So, what was your reaction to the slap? Um, it was sort of like, uh, you know, I, I've been sort of trying to keep a distance from these these kind of dramas and things, and I I would just sort of made a point of like thinking, okay, this I was trying to estimate the airtime this would get. Is this going to be a one week thing or a two week thing? You know, I'm just tired of this sort of merry-go-round of issues of the week that need to be debated and shrieked about and then forgotten. You know, remember like uh, when the this uh, Neil Young thing erupted with Joe yes. Rogan, and like it was just a lightweight scandal. And I just said I commented to a friend, it's like next week you won't even remember this. You won't, you, you know, it'll take a week for this one to wash off. And so I'm just starting to see the whole news cycle as this kind of ritual bath that doesn't have any particular meaning. So I'm trying, but, but that said, if you want my thoughts, it, it does seem like it's a rung down. We've sort of climbed a rung down and I am a bit worried about um, casual violence or, or, or capricious violence. Remember uh, once upon a time in New York, people were, uh, people uh, were, um, what were they doing? I think they were pouring, like they would, they would pour gasoline into the booths of subway attendants, then light the gasoline. Yeah. 
remember this? Yeah. Like these just, and then the, what was it? The knockout game, you know, I just feel like this is going to be more and more common and it, it does just feel like a, dec- a, de- you know, a decaying society. Um, I'm yeah. hoping, go yeah. ahead. No, finish your thought. Well, I'm just hoping that this doesn't happen. I'm hoping that there's, uh, you know, uh, the other thought I had is, can you imagine if it wasn't Will Smith, but it was a white person yeah. that had done that, yeah. right? Like, would that be like, uh, you know, that would outdo George Floyd, wouldn't it? In terms of uh, national repercussions. And, you know, and then what if it were reversed? You know, what, what if the, the joke, whoever telling the joke, what was Jimmy Kimmel instead of Chris Rock and that Jimmy Kimmel was slapped by Will Smith? You know, the, the, the apologies for Will Smith would just be thick and fast for weeks, you know? I'm sounding like Dennis with all my you knows. Which Dennis? Dennis Dale. Oh. You know. <laughs> you know. My, my, my first Dennis is Dennis Prager. <laughs> That's right. Of course. <laughs> of course. But yeah, what? Uh, but yeah, then there's this whole sort of sub drama. Was it planned? Was it faked? You know, and this is sort of erupt, and you've talked about it. Yeah, it's definitely not planned and not faked. I mean, there's no. too much real uh, emotion going on there. And it was right. such it, a it, self destructive act. He's got. He's got $100 million movies that are being placed on hold as a result. Really? Huh. Yeah. Well, you know, the reason I know it wasn't fake is if you could see his eyes were like blood red. Yeah. You could kind of see through. That's not fake. You can't fake that. I don't care how angry you, you If you're not angry, you can't, uh, you, you can't bring that up. You, you know what real emotion looks like. And so, but it, it is funny that, uh, as you point out, the uh, conspiracy theory mill just started right up, <laughs> no hesitation. Um, and that is definitely a feature of our side of the political aisle. And it pains me to admit. So you, you mentioned you're kind of tired of the, the, the drama of the week. So I'm, I'm just curious, are there any things that you're not tired of? Um, Puppy in dogs. my personal life or publicly? What Puppy mean? dogs, walks on the beach, Chinese food, <laughs> playing tennis. Oh, well, I'm on this, uh, I'm on this big, like, um, I'm tending to the minutia kick, you know, I'm taking care of things. So listen to this hack I did, Luke. I think you can be impressed. So, you know, Costco, right? The big behemoth warehouse store. Yeah. Right. So apparently... If you get this souped up membership and you use their credit card, they you can they offer a credit card. So you get like 2% back on your purchases for being a member. And then the credit card gives you 2% cash on all nice. your purchases. And this includes gas, you know, and Costco sells gas. So basically, you know, I, I paid off all my credit cards, uh, you know, three or four months ago. And so I lowered the balances, all of those. And I, I didn't close the credit cards on the other cards because I heard that negatively, in fact, impacts your credit. Uh, I just lowered the available credit. Mm-hmm. 
excuse me. And I opened a credit card. It gives my better wishes. So now I'm going to put all of my expenses through this credit card. And what it's going to mean is I'm going to basically save 4% on everything I spend in a year. Yeah. You know, and so this little hack I figured would, would, would uh, net me about a thousand bucks for what amounted to be like less than two hours work. So I'm really pleased with myself for having done this. Um, I'm just attending to the details. Yeah, unless unless these incentives cause you to spend more money than you otherwise would. They're not doing this deal so that they can lose money. They're doing this deal because on average, this makes them money. Of course, right? Because, you know, people regard, and I'm certainly guilty of this, they regard credit as a sort of free money, free money or semi-free money, or they just don't do the math. And I'm going to be extra vigilant not to fall in that trap, but that is a trap I have fallen into many a time. But I think I'm just not amused by things, Luke. I don't, there's nothing I can buy, right? I'm just, you know. Uh, you I have don't a have massage that... gun? Do like I have it's just a hundred dollars. It's uh, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. It's like I mean, I'm not impressed by things either, but this massage gun is awesome. And then, ha- have you ever used an activator? Yeah, you know, the chiropractic adjusting tool. I've just one hundred fifty dollars, and and the textbook is is just another one hundred fifty dollars. I mean, just will change your life. Yeah, yeah. Well. I've come to think, you know, the, the best things in life are free, Luke. I, uh, that said, now here's the hip, giant hypocrisy. Uh, I did buy an air purifier yesterday. Oh, yeah, I got one of those. Do you? Yeah. Now, um, I live in Los Angeles. I carry it with me everywhere. No, no, no. Oh, no, we're talking about something different. Though. No, no, no. I know right. I do. I've got it in my house. In my oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So uh, do you feel like it works? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like if there's a smell in the room and I just turn it on high, it, it goes. I mean, not that there are very often smells in my room, but the very rare occasions that there are smells in my room, poof, it goes. But what about like, I'm more concerned like dust. and. Oh, yeah, and it picks like up that. a lot of dust and crap. No, it's it's awesome. Big believer. And yeah. I've been using them for like 20 years. Yeah. So, okay. And uh, can I ask how much you spent on it? Uh, I think I spent 80 on this last one and I've had it for about 10 years. $80? Yeah. Oh, you it's got, got like ultraviolet blue light that kills bad things. Okay. Okay. I, I, uh, I went, I spent 300 bucks wow. on a used one. Wow. Cause, um, I, you know, you know, just go big or go home. So um, I'm, I'm eager to see if this can work out. I'm trying to, uh, I'm sort of just doing a lot of things. The other thing I'm curious about, I don't know if you've experienced with, is this red light, um, warm lighting, uh, counter seasonal affective disorder, that kind of stuff. You hear about this? Is no, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So there's these bulbs you can buy. They're very expensive, but you can... You put them in your place, and this is important San Francisco because you have to remember the summer here is overcast for like three and a half solid months, just daily overcast. And it really affects me. Uh, so 
You, you never know make... it from talking to you. Well, we're we're not in the summertime. You haven't seen me. In the summer, um, I think you're making a joke. I'm not quite getting it. <laughs> no, I'm fairly cheerful, but like if it's overcast, I get very depressed. Really? Okay. Well, not depressed, but lugubrious. Just a little, like it's barely noticeable. Uh, do I, I, are you saying that I'm, uh, are you being ironic here? Are you saying that I'm often seeming depressed? You often seem depressed. I do? Yes. Oh, really? Now, that's interesting because this is new information for me. Um, not just grumpy, but actually depressed. Yeah. Um, trying to think, what's the, what's the dys, dysthymia, like chronic low-grade depression, so you don't even notice it because it's chronic? Um, oh. I think but, that's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. But depression, I sort of think about as uh, having a sort of sense of sadness to it. And um, I don't feel that's the case. I feel that uh, uh, I feel like I have like this low grade ambient hostility. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, anxiety? Do you suffer? How, on a one to 10, mm. with 10 being extreme anxiety, how much anxiety do you think you normally walk around with? Um, I would think a four. Okay. Uh, I'd, I'd put it at a six or a seven. A six for you or six for me? Six for you. Really? But the thing is, you won't notice it probably till it's gone. Like if mm -hmm. you ever, you know, get into a, or when you do get into a relaxed state, um, often, like we put forward a false self or we, we just get so used to anxiety or, or, or sadness or depression that we only notice it when it's gone. So I'm sure there are times that it completely lifts. And so those would be the times when perhaps you'd get the, uh, the best accurate understanding of what kind of role it plays in your life. Well, I feel like maybe it's, maybe that's true, but I, what I do is I think I sort of attribute it to work. Right, just my work. Right, something external. I'm displacing it, right, yeah. onto something else outside myself. That could be very. Uh, I'm open to that. I mean, I feel like you know, what about like apathy? I... What about apathy, or do you just not care? <laughs> Ignorance and apathy. I, <clears throat> I do have to say that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I do fall myself sinking into apathy. Um, sort of like, you know, doesn't matter. Who cares? Yeah. Sort of a, you know, it's a cousin yeah. of nihilism yeah. or it's sort of yeah. the uh, gateway to nihilism. Yeah. Uh, but. And then the next what, one. Okay, here's the, what yeah. is the. Caring, like, you know, I spent a long time, you know, I put a lot of energy into caring about political outcomes, right? And, I, you know, I learned a pretty tough lesson in that regard. And so now, now I'm, you know, very disinclined 
to get involved. Now, is that apathy or is that just self care? I think it's apathy. Yeah. Now, Luke, do you suffer from apathy? Um, I, I would say anxiety. I, I I have some chronic anxiety, so probably a, probably around a five. Uh, apathy, I would say less. I, I don't think I suffer from much apathy. Um, but go ahead. Did you have? Well, okay. Do you think um, when you think about apathy, or you think about anxiety? Do you think of it as a psychological uh, condition, or do you think about it differently, no. like a physical no, I, thing? I think it's the problem of hegemonic capitalism. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's a it's a psychological problem. Yeah, I don't think okay. it's inherent in living in the city, for example. Um. Well, I do now. Tell me if this is true of you. I, when I was younger, you know, I would, uh, I would see other people, you know, I, you, you look at people, you look at their faces, you look at their, you look at how they carry themselves, you look at their demeanor, you know, and I just remember being awed by a lot of people, like these other people just striking me as being, um, you know, really respectable and worthy of, of, of admiration at one level or another for some characteristic or some other characteristic. Uh, but then now I, I walk around and I just see a lot of people and I just, I just get such a negative feeling about them. They seem to be, uh, you know, uh, they just fill me with a certain contempt, you know, just the, just the way they carry themselves, the things that they say, it just seems like, the dumbing down, it does feel like, it just doesn't feel the same. Now, two things have changed. Have either people have changed or I have changed. Um, but do you, do you get this sense? Yeah, oh, I mean, there are definitely problems in, in society. Mm. And there's definitely like a dumbing down of, of society. Now, th there's like, there's like the, the psychiatric perspective on what we're talking about. And then there's another perspective, which is that we've medicalized sadness. Like sadness is, is a normal response to loss or not having things that one wants. So you could make a strong case that whatever anxiety, depression, whatever psychological symptoms that, that you and I suffer from and the audience suffers from, is a realistic, normal, and natural response to the sadness of their life. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, like you could objectively make a case for the sadness of my life and the sadness of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you could, you could, with, with, factual accuracy, you could paint a narrative that uh, a normal person would see this and go, okay, a normal, natural reaction to this life is to be sad. 
Right. And so, um, okay. So, so yes. But within that sort of sadness and disappointment, there is a certain amusement, right? There's a certain, well, I think that's what, why this sort of online space has grown. It's sort of an outlet for all of this uh, negative feelings, these, 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 uh, uh, these toxic interactions that you have with, pe- with people. You can, there's never an outlet to sort of discharge that. And now on the internet, there is this like uh, sewer pipe. Yes. <laughs> you can go in and just pour it into. Yeah. Like, okay, so put it this way. So like, so you're playing a lot of PPP stuff, right? So yes. I've been aware of PPP for at least two years now. Oh, and, okay. And uh, so he's basically this counter Ralph uh, faction on the internet. Okay. Um, and he's... Um, uh so there's a whole basic culture around hating ralph now i don't know if you know this i'm starting to sense this yeah and uh um it's very bizarre but like you know big if you see some of ralph's behavior you will just be gobsmacked with how atrocious it is but then you have people like kevin michael grace has appeared on the show you know richard i've appeared on this show oh you were did i miss that I must have missed that. I can't believe I missed that or forgotten about it. How recently was this? I don't know. Six months ago with Joseph Cotto. Uh, oh, that's right. Okay, you two were debating uh, the election. The election. Okay, right. And uh, but the video is coming out of that, and then this whole thing in the baked Alaska thing. It seems like collectively everyone's sort of going through some self-reflection. And basically, PPP and Andy are now on the side of sort of uh, maturity and encouraging this, um, uh, you know, more adult approach to life. But uh, uh, it's been very funny to watch and very uh, informative to watch. But then, you know, like I said, I'm like, why am I listening to this stuff? This is ridiculous, you know? And I'm sort of taking pleasure, like, well, I'm not as bad as Ralph, yeah. you know, which is just a really low bar, you know, where are these positive, where are the positive people I'm meant to compare myself to, right? And I don't know. So tell me Doesn't about- it make you feel good? Do you feel good, like, just being able to behave better than Ralph? <laughs> when, when I behave better than Ethan Ralph, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a major source of happiness in my life. <laughs> But so that is the the attraction that this stuff has. And so I'm like, okay. So put it this way. I've been trying to like, just, okay. What I wish, looking back in the past, the Pepe years, 2016 to present, right? Was what I wish had happened is that there were sober voices out there talking about skills and skill development. And you know, when I, when I see somebody, like a lot of these streamers don't have any skills outside of streaming. And to me, that is just, that is going to cost them over the course of their lives, immeasurably. And I don't know, it seems like, uh, you know, if you talk about why people are being displaced, why, um, why Indian immigrants are so attractive, 
to you know corporations why chinese immigrants are attracted to corporations is that they have some skills and i don't know it just seemed like that was seen as a uh, a concession to the system to somehow develop a skill and boy I, 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 the effects of this aren't going to be are going to be really bad hey microsoft really wants me to install windows 11 and i'm mm -hmm. perfectly happy with windows 10 do you have any thoughts should you do it or not yeah well, I don't use Windows, but uh, I hear every time there's a Microsoft upgrade, something that you got accustomed to using will break. So has that been your experience in the past? Uh, on occasion, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't generalize. I, I'm not. I'm not uh, transfer, transferring over to, to Windows 11 because I don't have any problem with Windows 10. But yeah, there are sometimes problems. But do you get these annoying alerts? Please upgrade, please upgrade. Please upgrade. Oh, they, they essentially force you. And so I upgrade. I upgrade my iPhone, whatever it says to upgrade my iPhone. 99% of the time, I don't find a problem. So why do you use an iPhone and Windows? Why would you stay, you know? Because I've used Windows for 20, uh, 25 years, and I like the iPhone, so... They, they both work for me. Interesting. Hmm. Now, tell me about this red light thing. Red light? You, you bought some red light device. Special oh, well, I haven't light. bought it yet. I'm contemplating it. The okay. reason I'm balking is because it's rather expensive. Okay. The stuff is very, but uh, you, and it, it's expensive for something that if it doesn't work, I'm going to be furious. Right? That doesn't sound like you. <laughs> Tranquility now. <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is is like you know I, i've seen so many hyperbolic claims you know made on the internet all the time and like i've fallen prey to some of these like if i fall prey to another one i'm just gonna be furious but yes i wouldn't wouldn't you like to have like uh like a buoyant mood all the time luke and if all it took was just a, the right amount of red light Tell me about this device. Let me look it up for you. I'm sure they get you a good deal on Amazon. Oh, Amazon. It's like Huma, I think. Huma. Let me see. How do you spell that? Infrared. The yeah, infrared H light therapy. Yeah. Some great. H O M A light. Yeah. Great deals on Amazon. Really good products. Um. So. So yeah, a lot of these products have great reviews. Uh, red light therapy, them? infrared heating wand. Um, I don't know. I don't have uh, don't have a strong opinion on red, but I I do use a SunTouch Plus. So I I use something that like gives you know bright sunlight. I put it on pretty much every morning uh, when I when I wake up. And, uh, I mean, uh, oh man, what do you mean? Sun touch plus, sun touch plus won't. So yeah, it gives like a bright shining sun in my room. So yeah. Okay. Well, this is coming to me from a guy that I know who's into all of this kind of stuff, like hyperbaric oxygen, all of this sort of, uh, you know, Tim Ferriss kind of optimal, you know, human optimization type. Oh, and there's a lot of that in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of this around you. 
Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And you know, I you know, I, I dip my toe in the world of mushrooms, and you know, with mixed results. And but uh, now, is my inability or my, my my reluctance to dive into this just sort of a a feature of my generally depressive, negative character? I think appropriate skepticism. I mean, you should just look at the studies and see how strong the evidence is for. For, for these things but also let's what what if it just like i'm fine with with many of my devices and supplements if they simply have a placebo effect you know i'm fine by that the placebo effect is incredibly powerful hmm. would you would you be a-okay just getting a placebo effect from this um no because <laughs> i i would think well why did i need this placebo why couldn't i just talk myself into being better improving you know but yes, I guess I would. Ultimately, if the effects were real, yeah, how could you not be uh, uh, happy with it? Yeah. So anyway, um, all right. So it's nothing you've heard of, right? I've I've only just started uh, researching this, but it, you know, this just feels like another weird immor immortality project that I'm sort of doing. Well. Let's uh, let's have a look at the the next symptom for depression here. Let tell me if this. Uh... Oh, it's huga. Sorry, H O O G A, huga. Okay, wait. I had. Okay, um, general discontent. Do you, do you experience general discontent, Elliot? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, H O O G A. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, with my Amazon uh, credit card, I get 5% back on everything I purchase, which I think is a pretty good deal. Only and on Amazon or everything? On, Every only on Amazon. Right. But in Debtors Anonymous, there was a, a big debate for decades about whether or not it was okay to use one credit card if, if you paid it off every month. Yeah. And the, the consensus after several decades was that it was better off for people to have no credit cards and only use a, a debit card. I'm not saying that's right for everyone. I'm just saying that's the experience yeah. of that. Yeah, I, I was of that belief, uh, and I could certainly make sense. What, you mean if the temptation's not there, you won't take advantage of it. So why not put a build a wall between you and the problem? I mean, I I use that one one credit card, and and pay it off in full every month. So yeah, well now now that you can sort of set, you can just set the payment to be automatic every month. Exactly. Uh, there's no reason not to do it. The problem is in the old days, you'd have oh. to sort of write out a check. Oh. And, then, and then they would yeah. take forever to, to cash your check. So I think MBNA, yeah. which I think bought Bank of America, used to routinely screw me. I would send off my payment like 10 days early, and then yeah. they would still count it as late and slug me an extra $25. Yeah. I mean, they did this routinely. They got sued for it. And there was like some class action where if I jumped through hoops, I might have gotten you know $10 back. But yeah, they took me time and time again. Yeah, and the rage. And then I remember, you know, yeah, then they then they jack your interest rate up to like 29%, something sadistic like that. And uh, but so anyway, I love the idea of sort of getting back at the credit card companies, like having them pay me just just so enticing, just feels, uh, feels like justice. Oh, when I got my American Express card, I it gave me $500 just for getting an American Express card. Like mm -hmm. I, they just paid me $500. So Normally, the advice that I've read is don't get a new credit card unless they give you the equivalent of at least $200. Yeah. 
that the American mm-hmm. Express gave me $500. And I, I splurged it all on buying ads for my Alexander Technique business. Mm-hmm. I think I spent, ended up spending six or $700 on ads. And yeah. I got one client who came one time for $100. <laughs> yeah, it sort of just feels like a casino. You know, it's the same thing. You know, you go in and you get your 20 free chips or something like that. I've heard being with a lady friend will cure a lot of these mindless purchases. Yeah. How long has it been? Luke? <laughs> <laughs> so did now, you look what at about my... schwitzing? I haven't done much schwitzing. I mean, I used to get in a sauna when there were cute girls in there, but other than for hanging out with cute girls, I haven't spent much time schwitzing. How about you? Well, it's funny you should say that. Uh, I was, um, there's a whole like hot, uh, what do they call it? Uh, thermal springs, you know, hot, hot water, natural hot water spas up here in Northern California. And so I was going to treat myself to that for like, for, 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 for four hours, you go up there and just do like a deep hot water soak, you know? And, uh, oh, okay. Cause I've been doing a, a Epsom salt baths and they've been really helping me sleep. So if you have this insomnia loop, like it sounds like you do, treat yourself to a little Epsom salt bath. I've got Epsom salts. I sometimes soak my feet in them, but I haven't had any foot pain for a long time. So I I got out of, got out of that habit. Okay. But but I mean, if you really are having trouble sleeping, it will, you will sleep really well after an Epsom salt bath. I'll tell you that. Not right now, Luke. So I have not seen the movie Dark City. Have you seen the movie Dark City? No, I haven't been to a movie theater in six years. Do you know that you can often watch movies on the internet? Yeah, I know, but I would prefer to listen to internet drama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't recall watching Ducks. Don't recall seeing Dark City. So I don't like science fiction. So no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna watch uh, science fiction. But I mean, that schwitzing thing, anything is funny if you go do it with friends. Sure. I mean, I'd go do yoga with friends. I'd go do schwitzing with friends. I'd go pick up trash with friends. You know, I'd go volunteer with the homeless for the homeless with friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything is fun with friends. Um, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> so general discontent. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing some general discontent. Yeah, it's, okay. hey, I, I see it as positive, Luke. It's creative discontent. Yeah, right. All great yeah. artists were discontented, so I yeah, it's, think, a, it's uh, a good thing. It's a good thing, Elliot. How about yeah. hopelessness? Do you experience much hopelessness? No, no. What about loss of interest or pleasure in activities? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, mood swings. Like, do you ever get angry at work? Yes. Yes. Sadness. But only sadness? Yeah. No, and it scares me that I don't get sad. Because I think my I've replaced sadness with apathy. Uh, Maybe it's a, it's a, it's a it's a numbing technique or something. What about agitation and irritability? Uh, sadly, yes. Sadly. Social isolation? Yes. <laughs> uh, excessive hunger, fatigue, or loss of appetite? Uh, 
fatigue lately. Yeah. Did you have uh, weight gain? Or... Yes, badly. I have to get back in the water loop. Do you find yourself repeatedly going over the same thoughts? Um, I don't think so. The same thoughts. Let me think about that. So you mean like just ruminating on one thing yeah. over and over and over? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say never, but I wouldn't say often either. Like like reliving an event from history from my no no the same thought it, it's like repetitive so let me so in two thousand and seven I remember two thousand seven two thousand and eight I kept having the thought you know I'm so fucked you know I'm a fucker I'm such a stupid fucker what a fucking dumb thing to do mm-hmm. uh, no I I don't have that but I, I definitely have a lot of self criticism for sure. Um, but sometimes it's it's warranted and justified, right? Did you ever watch uh, Black Mirror where the politician got blackmailed into having sex with a pig on national TV? <laughs> no. It, Sounds compelling. Uh, Glib found it despicable. I mean, it was certainly edgy. Uh, oh, I started watching the, the British TV show Fresh Meat. Uh, yeah. Really enjoying that. It's It's made by the same people who did Peep Show. Oh, I liked Peep Show. Peep Show was good. Yeah. Um, fresh meat, huh? Is it the same cast? Or is it same no, different different cast, but one cast member makes an appearance as a geology professor. But it's uh, six kids who who start university. But uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty amusing. It's, uh, it's, it's not, I need like funny things to watch before I go to bed. Huh. Oh, by the way, um, have you heard of this guy, uh, e, uh, what's his name? E.O. Wilson? Moon. His last name is Moon. I'm forgetting his first name. Moon, Reverend Sun, uh, Sun Young no, Moon? No, no, Kiwi Farm. Josh Moon. You heard of Joshua Moon? Is he the owner of uh, Kiwi Farms? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And he he does a weekly, so he does a weekly stream. Yes, oh. Matt at the Internet. Oh, okay. So you listen? Yes. I, I don't listen. I, I've, I've checked it out. Okay, I, I've been listening. I've been listening to the back catalog, and I, I just sort of like his voice. I think his takes are really interesting, uh, and he has some really keen insights. And um, I, um, he's sort of, sort of <laughs> part of the counter Ralph uh, movement that's afoot on the internet. He's sort of vaguely related to the PPP scene. So, uh, but but Ralph hates Josh Moon, right? The rage. That Ralph expresses not keeping for for uh, Joshua Moon is just amazing, but uh, so I, I I listen to this stuff in the background. You know, um, I, I I find this type of content far more far more engaging than sort of produced yeah. uh, theatrical content that's that's been scripted. You know, I I, I like the spontaneity and the frankness. The, the frankness that the internet has uh, spawned has, has been so nice. You know, it feels like it's helped me clarify my thinking by people simply speaking frankly about what they feel. It's encouraged me to speak very frankly, both publicly and then with myself, about myself, and sort of get out of this sort of hemming and hawing and uh, um, 
uh, uh, hedged, uh, uh, conflicted conversation that I used to have with myself. I feel like I've uh, kind of grown past that through internet blood sports. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, no, I, I understand that. Like uh, better living through internet blood sports. Right, the healing power of blood sport. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's the book I should write: is the healing power of blood sports. My journey through internet, my healing journey through internet rage. rage. When you hear something really good, you should note the timestamp and and send it to me. Okay. All right. I'll do that. I'll do that. I mean, I could do. I just don't know what the line between spamming is and not spamming. But um, I'll let you know. But I'm wondering, that makes me think though, is there like better content out there? Like, um, you know, it seems like there, you know, this little silo that you have, right? Where, you know, the characters kind of orbit around you and your show and so forth. And then there's generation, there's concentric circles that go out from that. But is there like a better- A better what circle, if, a cooler party, what if, a cooler what crowd. The, better yeah group. is there a cooler crowd out there and how like, can i get invited to it yeah. just they put me where i belong you know? that recognizes you for who you really are instead right. of like the slum version of you right so but i wonder like uh, do everybody i know do they have like this secret little internet um community that they're a part of that sort of supplants yeah i think yeah the, the ted 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 talks Oh, yeah, I know. I can't stand that. What, how often do you find yourself listening to Morrissey? Uh, are you saying that I'm a hopped up pantry boy who never knew his place? I, I have no idea. I, I mean, I listen to Morrissey, but uh, I don't know the deepest significance of it. I'm just curious. Uh, I liked it in high school, for sure. Yeah, I thought that was, I thought he was right. I like the Smiths were great in high school. I mean, it's the perfect like teenage angst music. Uh, I don't listen to him currently, but I can understand the appeal. So, do you not go to movies because you're afraid of getting shot? No. Well, I, I used to work in a movie theater, and I actually, as soon as I crossed the threshold of a movie theater entrance, and I smell that sort of ambient smell of popping popcorn. I, I get I get triggered. It's like I get like a Vietnam flashback, uh, and I just have to get out. I can't. I don't even like being in the building. Part of it is the smell, and part of it is like the expense. And then, you know, I think the last movie I saw was um, Kristen Wiig. Uh, what was it? Um, are, are these real movies or are these porn theaters? No, they're real movies. Okay. They're real movies. Oh, I had a question for you. Speaking of porn movies, though, did you ever hear of a porn movie called Thundercrack? No. Okay. <laughs> What's the plot? Okay. It is the most high IQ porn movie that has ever been made, right? Okay. It's basically a takeoff on the, um, you know, the Rocky Horror the uh, Picture Show plot, you know, Alone, you meet like a a mansion. You go to a man. Your your car breaks down, and you have to go to this haunted mansion. So it takes place in a haunted mansion. Yes, I, I have heard of it. It's a pornographic black comedy horror film. <laughs> you just Google it, right? Yeah, no, but, but, yeah, but it, I I vaguely remember hearing about it. <laughs> okay. 
I well the the I you know I saw this like 30 years ago. Somebody somebody like <laughs> just gave me a, a DVD and told me to watch it. But it's not even available. I mean, it, it's like it was like an art film made in San Francisco like 30, 40 years ago by these crazy people. Uh, but there was some very funny dialogue, you know, <laughs> in that movie, the double entendre in that movie were just amazing. What so, were some of the best lines? Maybe it's on IMDb. Okay, so here's so so you have to understand it was shot in black and white, right? And there's so they're, they they get separated inside of this uh, haunted house. They can't find each other, right? This is the quote unquote plot. And then at one point, this <laughs> this, guy, this guy goes into this room, right? And then he sort of jerks off with this device, right? He has this, this long slow motion device that they play, right? And they show him jerking off, and <laughs> and then uh, his his. <laughs> One of his uh, his companions uh, finds him, knows he's in the room, and he knocks. She, she knocks on the door, and she's got like a southern accent. She goes, "What you doing in there? Jerking off?" <laughs> Which, in the context, was super funny because that was like it was like a ten minute slow mo. Okay, here's some. There was some droll. There was a droll, some very droll humor. All right. Yeah, there are a whole bunch of quotes on uh, IMDb. All right, go ahead. I'm waiting to find a a funny one. Oh, one of them's like. (laughs) I can't even. I I just remember laughing. I can't remember the actual quote. Uh, Bond says, "I'm young and restless. I'm not to be trusted. There's a lot of energy in this body, Willine." And it hops around from bed to bed like a flea. To be bit by a love bug like me could be a pretty scratchy situation. Willine, I don't care, my love. All I ask is that when I start itching, you start scratching. Okay, so Toity rubs up behind Gert as they prepare to have sex in the kitchen. Gert, I should pull away, but I can't. Toity, why not? Because I would fall into the oven like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. That would leave you alone in this gingerbread house to eat all the cookies and peppermint sticks. What's wrong with that? You would get sick, and no one would be around to give you an anima. Audio loop. Wait, you can't hear no, you're me? Off. Okay. Your uh, audio Bing. dropped for a second. Bing, dropped. it's not the quadrupeds that are dangerous, it's the gargantuan biped. What the hell is a biped? You're a biped, dummy. Now look, Chandler. I don't mind you calling me a dumber, dummy, but don't be calling me any dirty Italian names. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. this is this is appropriate, Sash. You can't threaten me anymore, Rue. I don't care what you say. For the first time in my life, I'm in love with a man. You sure about his credentials? You mean you let some nun stick an elephant syringe in your organ while your husband beats his meat and waits? My husband does not beat his meat. He fluctuates his firmness. <laughs> Evidently, true love cannot be quashed by religious or traditional taboos. Bing has expressed his love for the gorilla, and she in turn has pursued him across four continents and will not be tamed until she gets him. I can sympathize with her. It's been a long time since this house has seen happiness and love. 
Once these walls did echo with the gayest of laughter, for that was when my husband was alive and my son existed. So, so you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna track it down and watch it, Luke? No, nah, I think I'll skip. I, I just yeah. don't see how it serves me. <laughs> the coin there of sexuality. Yeah, the, the coin of sexuality always has two faces. Look, you keep dropping out. The coin of sexuality always has two faces. I'm trying to understand that one. It's too abstruse for me, Luke. No IQ. Okay, bro. Are you reading any good books lately? Not a one, Luke. Not a one. Not a boo. Not a reader these days, my dude. I'm a doer. There's those who read. There's those who live. Those who act. And those who read about those who act, Luke. I'm in the former category. Okay, good, good talking to you. <laughs> All right, bro. All right, I'll catch you later. Catch you later. Take yeah, care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, this is the exciting time in the show where I share with you the books I've been reading. And we get to rejoice. Okay, read uh, The Politics of Knowledge, 2011 book here. And it's become more difficult for intellectuals to sustain the type of vertical authority, right? So that's where you're talking down to your audience. You're up here, you're talking down. So that's a vertical authority. With education comes a growing awareness of the fallibility and contested nature of scientific findings or philosophical positions and an increased willingness to challenge those views and to rally support to mount such a challenge. So the intense public debates and parliamentary inquiries into academic conduct at the University of East Anglia's Climate Change Unit after leaking of emails back in, what, was that 2012? Illustrate the, 2010? Illustrate the greater openness of intellectuals to public scrutiny and criticism. See, I, I'm, I'm a dialogical public intellectual. I'm not up here talking down to you. It's like we're all here together, surrounded by incredible amounts of radical love and inclusion, and, and we're having a dialogue. Like, you complete me. I could not do this show without you. Right, So intellectuals are coming open to increased public scrutiny and criticism when they pronounce on issues with wider social and political impact. So the increased use of academics as expert witnesses in criminal trials has exposed their reasoning to critical scrutiny, which leads to arguments being undermined in the courtroom and subsequent reanalysis. So after the testimony of eminent pediatrician Roy Meadow led directly to a mother's imprisonment for the deaths of her children, Re-examination of his statistical methods suggested that he had substantially overstated the odds against their dying of natural causes, leading to the woman's release and the expert's disgrace. So increasingly, lay people feel entitled to be involved in debates of this nature. Although few are equipped to read the scientific papers and question the conclusions directly, they have found ways to force intellectuals from lecture mode into dialogue, probing and publicizing the sources of evidence, deploying dissenting intellectuals who can move the peer review process into public forums and forcing intellectuals to state their case in ordinary language, which sometimes leads them to use metaphors and examples that are more easily attacked than the underlying model. So the more vertical, top-down, an intellectual's pronouncements become, the stronger are they assailed by counterforces aimed at knocking them down from their high perch if their pronouncements significantly impact upon other groups or individuals. So Climate Gate happened in 2009. Can't catch this now. Will it be uploaded on another platform? There's nothing 
that's been said today that would keep this uh, show from being uploaded, staying up on YouTube. But if for any reason it is removed from YouTube, it's always on SoundCloud and on Rever and on BitChute and on Odyssey. So an increasingly educated public like you is more resistant to being talked down to and more inclined to demand a voice in conversations involving professional intellectuals. He's mm. kind of in on it where he wants to be portrayed as this white supremacist leader so that he can be a David Duke to the next generation or something like this. And I think that if Louis had really wanted to punish Nick, he wouldn't have betrayed him like he did. Because Nick wanted to be portrayed in this way, kind of. When you look at the closing shot of the documentary, which is Nick at that podium, you know, kind of looking Hitler-esque, giving his speech, you know, a movement whose time has come, is unstoppable, it's inevitable. That's the way he wants to be portrayed. I don't think he wants to be portrayed as like an incel loser shut in i mean he keeps portraying himself that way which is why i was online. shocked you know i was like like i don't get the angle here you know what i mean i'm like it seems so scattershot like all the america first stuff like i'm like he doesn't want to be in he wants uh you know he wants conservative values he wants in saladum you know he wants you know like he wants more viewers, but not like certain. Okay, things. you're saying 40, cut out the populist nonsense, get back to the deep and heavy intellectual analysis. Okay, so the, the gap is certainly widening between intellectuals and the general public, all right? Education is not narrowing the knowledge gap. Academic journals are rarely as understandable to the educated lay reader as they were, say, 50 or even 20 years ago. So the epistemic, that means how do we know what we know? The epistemic distance between intellectual and lay conversation has been lengthened by increasingly technical use of language, especially mathematical and statistical. Increased use of references to past contributions and knowledge, which is required to make sense of new contributions. What narrows as a result of expanding education is the evaluative distance between intellectuals and the public. So lay audience members become more competent at assessing the nature, coherence, and effectiveness of intellectual arguments and more confident and expressing skepticism or demanding clarification. So this increases the public inclination to challenge, reserve judgment, or even outright reject intellectual arguments without fully understanding the technical details of these arguments. So education leaves lay readers and listeners better equipped or believing themselves to be better equipped to assess the structure and coherence of intellectual arguments without grasping their full content. Separation of evaluation from technical understanding is assisted by the enhanced formalization and empirical testing of arguments that accompanied the rise of the professional intellectual. So formalization means the conversion of verbal arguments into models. So the intellectual trend in pretty much every discipline is to become particularly, no, I'm talking primarily about the humanities and the social sciences, to become increasingly abstract, reflexive, mean coming back on you, understanding the, the, the observers, integral part of the data so that's why math the the various social sciences and even the humanities are becoming increasingly mathematized because that's the most abstract so we're, we're making all sorts of verbal arguments into mathematical models which the public can then consider and challenge even without understanding the intricacies of the modeling because professional models can usually be reduced to a skeletal form that the public can understand so many lay people challenge complex economic models on the basis of assumptions 
that wages adjust to create full employment in labor markets, or that individuals or firms make rational, maximizing choices. Empirical testing confronts models with data whose provenance and accuracy can be judged by a lay public independent of their assessment of the models. So climate change skeptics challenge global warming models on the basis their calibration uses data that can be alternately interpreted or whose accuracy can be disputed. Education confers the ability and the confidence to identify and challenge the style of intellectual argument, even when the argument's technical contents are beyond lay comprehension. This is uh, Richard Spencer last week on The Slap Heard Around the World. And uh, I noticed this in particular in 2016 um, with the alt-light, where there's this very funny video of Mike Cernovich squealing about people assaulting him and things like this. You know, don't get your hands off me. Don't assault me. It's just very, it's very sad. Um, obviously, you know, I didn't take any pleasure in an Antifa activist, you know, coming out of nowhere and elbowing me on the side of the head. Uh, the, you know, the, the sucker punch, basically, um, while I was talking to a camera. So There's a terrific Nicolas Cage movie, The Weatherman, who is a weatherman in Chicago, and he's just constantly being assaulted by his audience. They, they throw milkshakes at him. And so anyone who's been the recipient of this type of behavior, they're very ginger. They're very concerned about you know, providing more incentive for this behavior. So... That's why uh, Richard doesn't want to provide more incentives. I don't want to provide more incentives, get uh, smacked around publicly. And, and that's why there's a lot of kind of dancing around what happened to Chris Rock by Will Smith, if there's not outright condemnation. So completely focused and coming out of nowhere and doing that is obviously an extremely you know, immoral and unmanly way of doing things. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think it can go. Um, you don't want to take that too far. And, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a, a balance between civilization and violence. Um, dueling was, you know, in many ways, a terrible thing for Western civilization. It, it, it is a brutal practice. Um, it's just, you know, the amount of people who were insulted, you know, over a woman. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, an iPhone. Yeah, and he said, yeah. oh, and what dueling, we're doing, we're giving you a YouTube a, album for free idea. on iTunes. And everyone was mad. <laughs> so they're like, I don't, can you take this album off my iTunes library? They're, they're, like, I hate this. Okay, this is a... So, so invested in Trump and not in the dominant platform of a technological society. And that is a like seismic shift. And so it is kind of a problem when you don't have that, you don't have that unifying force in culture. I've, I've mentioned this, I mean, this is like a, a total anecdote, but I think it's really telling. I think I mentioned it before elsewhere. So this was like 10 years ago at this point, and it was an Apple event for the latest iPhone. And Tim Cook came out and he's like, all right, you're welcome folks. You know, uh, here is you too. So it's this band. I like YouTube, by the way, but it's this band from the 1980s, basically, and the 90s to extent. And so it's it's like a band that, in its heyday, pre-existed most of the people, or a lot of the people buying an iPhone. And he said, "Oh, and what we're doing is we're giving you a YouTube album for free." On and and, uh, and everyone was mad. <laughs> so they're like, "I don't. Can you take this album off my iTunes library?" They're, they're, like, I hate this. Who are they? YouTube? What is this? My dad or whatever? Like, no one appreciated it. And it was it was kind of these like boomers. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that in some derogatory sense, but it's like these boomers who remembered a uniculture from, say, the 80s, where you could say, you too, even though they're an alternative band, you know, pretty much everyone liked you too, or at least like 60% of the population and 80% of young people or whatever. And now you reach this point where like 5% of them like you too. And it's people like me, like Gen Xers in their 40s or whatever. And so it's, we just had this massive fragmentation where, you know, again, in previous generations, the Pentagon would have briefed the nightly news reader, you know, we, oh, we need to talk to, well, you know, Tom Brokaw 
and we, we, you know, we, we can't tell him what to say, of course, but we can give him some talking points, give him our perspective and kind of get him going. Now they're like, oh, we need to do this with selected YouTubers who are, are YouTubers or TikTokers who usually talk about like makeup and, you know, latest fashion or whatever. But even they, even though they might have millions of followers, even they are kind of like small time. Like there, there's no uniculture that it, it's, it's fragmented to such a degree. And I think it is like a huge challenge because it does open up the possibility of these like, you know, fragmented groups that almost become cults like QAnon being, you know, the ultimate example. Um, so I, I do think it's a really serious issue. Like oh, this, this space has been nostalgic, nostalgia ridden. Um, I remember being a, a kid where we would watch the Oscars and we had basically like seen most of the films and we would, you know, like I'd watch it with my mom and my sister and her friends or whatever. And we would always kind of like take bets. Like I, I can just remember being like Silence of the Lambs. I loved that movie. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm betting on this. It's going to beat Godfather 3 or whatever was going on that year. And um, I just think that is totally gone. A lot of this is like polarization where conservatives just hate Hollywood, you know, for good reason. But a lot of it, again, is this, like, there is no monoculture. And the only movies that are seen by everyone that have cultural salience will never win Academy Awards. It's like, it's basically Marvel movies. And, and so there's just this total disconnect. Further, what type of society has to break down whether something is true or not? Uh, like analyzing a slap, like the Zap Ruder film. That, that goes <laughs> to the point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it's kind of fun to do it. Back into the left. Back into the left. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's, fine. It's, it's fighting for its existence. How, how dare they? We told them to give up their nukes. I'm not going to talk about my principles or so on, but I'm not going to talk about my principles or so on. But I think they're like uh, a global audience as like the the friendly black guy, basically, because he's uh, the protege of uh, Quincy Jones. So he's kind of like picks up where Michael Jackson left off. He's like yeah. the global black figure. Yeah. He's, the, he's kind of the one everyone feels safe around and. Yeah. Um, he's, he's always, his, his marketing of his image has been like very carefully crafted. You can tell over the years, he's been kind of under the tutelage of, uh, you know, people that kind of, that are masters of this. Definitely. Um, yeah, you can ask a question, Werner. Okay. Uh, you do all these spaces and you sort of do analysis of, uh, society, um, and in general, what do you think? But, um, my question is, uh, I mean, what do you actually want to happen or who do you want to be elected or? What policy do you want to be implemented? Because I feel like several years ago you had real things that you wanted, but you don't have anything that you actually want anymore or anything that you stand for. So that's my question. Um, I, I think in terms of what I want to stand for is deeper things that I don't think are just going to happen. I mean, there, there was certainly a time when it was like, this is an amazing thing. Let's, let's elect Trump and so on. But even then, I saw Trump as... Uh, Richard struggles with this question because... Now that he can no longer advocate for you know one edgy white nationalist position that got him a lot of attention, there's there's like an emptiness inside of him, or perhaps he realizes, as I've come to realize, that generally speaking, you know, I'm far better off not advocating for anything, or to being quite limited in my advocating because I'm, I'm better at being in a state of awareness rather than a state of judgment. A kind of chaos vehicle for for changing the paradigm. And um, yeah, I mean, look, this is a rather relaxed space. So, um, you know, uh, I'm not going to talk about my principles or so on, but I think there's a lot of use in analyzing society. But yeah. Does Richard have principles that go beyond ex extracting the maximum of attention for Richard? Or ask yourself, does 40 have any principles that go beyond extracting the maximum of attention for 40? I'm not you know, holier than thou, I hope. I mean, I, I think what I care about deeply is um, are, are matters that are more spiritual. And I, I don't think we're going. 
do you think that's really what's going on that uh what what richard primarily cares about and matters that are more spiritual to change society by playing politics you know on a day-to-day manner um and in terms of big political things um i like for, for instance the war in ukraine which i think is dramatically changing the global situation um i i do think there's a lot of kind of serious analysis that needs to take place that can't really take place if it's just a kind of like right-wing partisanship um but i don't think you know i, I yeah i mean you can call me cynical or jaded or whatever you want but i i don't think we're going to see like a dramatic change in society due to electing someone or something in the next 20 years or more okay you're saying 40 get back to reading these fascinating excerpts from the books you've been reading and i just read a 2021 book Stephen Turner and the philosophy of the social. So Stephen Turner's been on, on the guest on the show a couple of times. He's turned 70 years of age. And so they, they did a celebration of his work. He's a philosopher of the social sciences. That's a picture of Stephen Turner as a younger man. Stephen Turner and the philosopher of the social. Remember Nathan Kopnis once uh, ran across a, a footnote by Stephen Turner and realized, hey, we've got a crime thinker here. So here are some highlights from this new book. Alexis de Tocqueville claimed that when he visited the United States in the mid-19th century, most people did not genuinely believe in God or in Christian dogmas. Right. So America is ostensibly a highly religious nation, but it's incredibly shallow. My father would tell me religion in America is a mile wide and an inch deep. So most people believe that atheists and agnostics are small minorities and don't want to pay the social price of non-conformity, such as social ostracism. So most people in America have professed publicly that they believe in God and they behave outwardly in many ways as though they are true believers by regularly attending church or temple. But for many people, this is entirely hypocritical, right? They know that most people in their social context is no longer a true believer, but due to the social stigma attached to atheism, conformity to the religious norm has persisted in America. I think that's an excellent point, and it's also true in much of the Muslim world. In Soviet Union, People were chronically scared and intimidated by police security agents, but they could trust their friends and relatives. In East Germany, people suspected that even relatives and friends could be secret police agents. So in Russia, people dared to express their intimate opinions in private when it was the Soviet Union. In East Germany, they dared not. As a result, everyone was quite possibly mistaken about the nature of the intimate beliefs of everyone else. Similarly, with regard to Islamic countries, Observers have noticed more and more frequently that people's relationships to Islam are far more diverse than is often thought. So just knowing that someone's a Christian, a Muslim, a believer in God, a a Jew, doesn't really tell you anything about them. Uh, Like uh, Alexis de Tocqueville a half century earlier, Max Weber was also struck by how many Americans, especially businessmen, declared belief in God and behaved outwardly as Christians, but nevertheless did not seem to be genuine in their beliefs. So Max Weber claimed, that the reason American businessmen often affiliated with very demanding sects, such as the Baptists, the Anabaptists, and the Quakers, was that these affiliations were seen as guarantees of trustworthiness, a priceless quality in business. So many members of these sects were arguably not motivated by ethical rationality, but by pragmatic rationality. And uh, Stephen Turner writes, the sexual revolution followed the pill and appeared to be a rapid change in society. By contrast, the removal of the threat of hell in most people's minds, which the Victorians thought would unleash moral chaos, had little effect. So we mistook the justificatory and condemnatory language people used 
and the theories that justified it for the real determinants of behavior. Right? There, there are two reasons we do something, the reason we say and the real reason. So when you operate within a niche of a particular religion, you learn to speak and to respond non-verbally in a particular way and to do so consistently. And this reorganizes your brain in a particular way, just as living within the niche of, say, university life and an academic discipline does. These effects are powerful. They differentiate people from other niches. And so we tend to have empathy for people who are like us and are in our niche, not people in a far-off niche. And then this is perhaps the most important paragraph in the new Stephen Turner book. In the study of race relations in the U.S., there have been a few... career of John Paul Sartre through the prism through the prism of, uh, of positioning. So when an intellectual comes out with a paper or makes a video, writes a book, appears on a TV show, you can judge whether what they're saying is right or wrong. Also, you can analyze it by what does this do for him? So I'm making a video now. What does this video do for me? Right? So Sometimes that can be much more empirically understandable than trying to understand the truth or rightness or righteousness or goodness or accuracy of what I'm saying. So why am I making this video? What is it doing? Ford is shockingly unaware. He becomes more like Christ every day. I believe that Alex Jones is a sincere Christian. So we think that intellectuals have a clear sense of their own identity and values and that these understandings of the self guide their work and the choices they make. So we tend to have an authenticity bias, right? We think other people are authentic, that they're acting from within their own beliefs. So there's a particular genre of intellectual biography that attributes particular significance to the author's self-description as a guide for understanding the various intellectual moves he's made. Well, don't think you can trust what people say about themselves. So intellectuals tell stories about themselves to themselves and to others. And these stories tend to be of certain types. And these stories shape their creative outlook. That's one perspective. So Patrick Bayet's analysis is, it's not proof for to conceive of intellectuals as pursuing authentic projects that correspond to their views about their identity and values, right? Richard Spencer sounds completely different now than he did in 2016, right? Has he really been on this authentic journey or is he simply positioning himself? He's clearly positioning himself differently. He's choosing to put himself in a different intellectual position to make his life easier and better. It's not that he's on this authentic inner journey. So intellectuals operate within competitive arenas. 
Right? There are other live streams that are going on right now. And intellectual struggle over symbolic and institutional recognition and scarce financial resources. So am I just whoring myself out for the super chats? So we need to recognize the extent to which intellectual contributions, whether books, articles, speeches, podcasts, live streams, are an integral part of this power struggle rather than an expression of some deeper self. Right? So look at the intellectual production, look at struggles over scarce resources such as money, power, fame, influence, and then establish the way intellectuals try to portray themselves to their audience. So being an intellectual is in large part a performance for various audiences. So intellectuals tend to depict their own intellectual trajectory as untainted by material, symbolic, and institutional constraints. Right, so I'll tell you about my conversion to Judaism, but I don't tell you about my conversion to Judaism as you know, grasping for material, symbolic, and, and you know, institutional rewards. So there are remarkably few intellectual autobiographies that acknowledge the full extent to which considerations of money, fame, power, institutional access interfered with the intellectual choices that they were made. Right? Intellectuals respond to incentives that they're that's a more effective way to understand how intellectuals operate than by having the authenticity bias of expecting that they're coming out of some genuine part of themselves, right? Autobiographies, intellectual productions position their authors and they position their allies and they position their opponents in certain ways. Now, an individual's formative years can have a considerable effect later on, but it doesn't really do for justice to the complexity of an intellectual's trajectory. Right? It's rare for intellectuals to stick to a single self-concept or to a coherent project throughout their lives. Intellectuals continually reinventing themselves, articulating new perspectives, taking on new positions. So this is called positioning theory. Like, why is this intellectual positioning himself in, in this way? So intellectuals orientations remain relatively stable, but they will continually position themselves within their general orientation to maximize their success, fame, power, access to women. So speech act therapists pay attention to words. Right? They, they follow uh, Wittgenstein rather than representing or mirroring the external world, that, that words accomplish things. So there are performative utterances, right? Utterances that are neither true nor false, but they do something, right? Everything I say today may be neither true nor false, but it's obviously doing something for me. So consciously, I'm thinking about it's waking me up from, I was feeling tired, lethargic, right? I had all those symptoms that I was just talking to. Uh, I had apathy, I had uh, loss of interest in doing anything. And so I thought I might as well do a live stream because the downside of behaving like a total jerk on a live stream will wake me up and it will force me to focus and it will force me to discuss all these books I've been reading. When I come on here and talk about the books I've been reading, that ingrains those books in my mind in a way that they would not be ingrained if I had not uh, done, done a live stream to talk about them. So when I say something, ask yourself, in addition to whether it's true or false, what does saying X, Y, Z do for 40? How does it benefit 40? How does it position himself in his, his world? 
So promises, compliments, or threats are examples of performances. So through the second half of the 20th century, fewer philosophers thought it fruitful to conceive of language as copying the external world. So more and more philosophers developed a different intellectual orientation. They became committed to the idea that language is an act that does something for the person speaking the language. So this is the performative perspective, looking at what intellectuals do and achieve rather than what they represent. We tend to think of intellectual tracks and productions as representing the world, reflecting something true in, in the world rather than acting on the world. So in contrast to other interventions such as policy briefings, music performances, or military actions, intellectual interventions seem passive. We tend to conceive of intellectual presentations and interventions as uh, coming out of some authentic part of the intellectual, that they belong to some semi-autonomous realm separate from the world of power, money, fame, politics, economics, institutions. So we tend to think of a journal article in a highly specialized academic journal as representing something through words, models, or equations. We tend not to see it as something active. So the basic intuition underlying this perspective is that even the esoteric journal article does something for the intellectual. The article might not have obvious direct repercussions for the broader world, but it does a wide range of things for the author, the authors cited for the discipline, for the institution. Right, this is positioning. This is the process by which certain features are attributed to an individual or a group or an entity. So positioning as a field of thought was initially introduced in the context of military strategies. Marketing experts have used this concept of position to indicate how the right kind of representation of a product or company or a brand can fill a previously untapped niche in the market. And you're saying, Fody, this is just way too exciting. You're blowing my mind. I have not had this quality of intellectual insight and this degree of intellectual excitement in my life since I was listening to Dennis Prager's show last week. So intellectual interventions involve positioning, right? Any intellectual intervention, a book, an article, a blog, a speech, a podcast, a video, right? These interventions locate the author within an intellectual field or within a broader social, political, or artistic arena and situate other intellectuals, depicting them as allies in similar ventures, as predecessors of similar orientations, or as intellectual opponents. So any intellectual move always brings about two types of effect. The first type is the positioning itself, and the second effect, certain types of positioning help to diffuse the ideas and enhance the agent's career and material prospects. Other types of positioning have adverse effects. They limit the further dissemination of ideas or halt the intellectual's professional progress. So Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, he was ignored for decades and decades during the Keynesian aftermath of the Second World War. But then around 1974, he got the Nobel Prize for economics and he became this big, huge name. So how did he do that? He successfully positioned himself as uh, this important intellectual that needed recognition. Uh, think about Karl Schmitt's attack on liberal democracy for promoting a neutral state that resolves differences, thereby failing to do justice to what he thought to be the natural enmity between people. So intellectuals, publishers, journal outlets, and the choices of references give subtle hints about what type of intellectual they are, where their allegiances lie. Sometimes positioning is achieved overtly, and intellectuals often use 
the introduction or concluding part of their text situate their intellectual intervention and themselves in relation to others. Equally explicit is the use of labels, which can act like brands. Intellectuals often use labels to flag their own position. These labels tend to capture the core idea in a succinct fashion. So this is obviously the case for Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism and his notion of the engaged intellectual. So existentialism was the most powerful philosophy, most widespread philosophy probably ever. And it was dominant after World War II, but then it just dropped from the stage from, from the 1970s on. So intellectuals use labels not just to refer to themselves, but also to others, the aim of criticizing or ridiculing the work of opponents. So take humanism. So in the mid-1940s, humanism had clearly positive connotations. Over the next couple of decades, it gradually became a negative reference point, often used to denigrate any assumption of a coherent or transparent self. Uh, Edward Said's notion of Orientalism and essentializing provides another potent example. Initially introduced in the specific context of literature has caught on. It has spread to various disciplines. It has been variably used, invariably used to denigrate allegedly flawed attempts to generalize about other cultures. Can't generalize about Jews, Muslims, Christians, blacks, whites. That's essentializing. Essentializing is to say that people have you know, certain essential traits if they're you know, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, black, white. So the introduction of a label facilitates the dissemination of ideas often, but the clarity of its meaning and its distinctiveness is often undermined once others start subscribing to the same label. So the term existentialism, which was initially used by journalists, then it was adopted by Jean-Paul Sartre, then was used to reflect the ideas of a whole variety of other intellectuals, including Martin Heidegger, Carl Jaspers, Albert Camus, and Simone de Beauvoir, and eventually was used as a broader culture of malaise and angst. So as the term became nebulous, Sartre abandoned the label. So Charles Pierce, he's a 19th century American philosopher. His pragmatism demonstrates the precariousness of labels. So once William James Schiller, a literary figure, started to adopt the term he had coined, Charles Pierce switched to pragmaticism to distinguish his intellectual orientation. And Friedrich Hayek adopted the term catalaxy to refer to the spontaneous order produced by market interactions after his earlier terms like free market and liberal economics had been adopted by the Chicago School, the University of Chicago School of Free Market Libertarian Economics, which had very different underlying philosophies and methods. And otherwise, I've just been reading about um, ancient Egyptian papyruses and things. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much been my weekend. And you? Interesting. Uh, I've just been working on a few different projects, finishing up your book, among other things. And so that will be, uh, I think we'll get it out this month. I'm going to send it in. Sometimes yeah. these things take a lot of time on the printer's end, but it should be out. So Spiteful Mutants, the book, out soon. It will be huge. Um, if I do say so myself, it is a very good book. Um, yes. I, I, I have to, yeah. Well, I think it, it is, I mean, yeah, I mean, un unironically, I mean, it, it, it brings together, there's a lot of interesting episodes in the book, like QAnon, Black Lives Matter, SJW. These will be kind of salacious for people to read about because they're contemporary and, and so on. But I, I think it's really the best way of bringing together the general spiteful mutants theory about child mortality and, and all sorts of things. So I, well, I, I think it's going to be really best, good. A, that's the best kind of thing, salacious, but also intellectually you know, intellectual in, and um uh, uh, you know 
academically underpinned. That's that's the best yeah, kind of book. Exactly. I think it's fascinating to read. It's a bit like a a, a play that's a, a series of jokes followed by death, or uh, uh, you know mm. uh, something like that. So, so it's, it's, it, yeah, you laugh and cry. So mm. so yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, that's I think it's the way forward. Yes, but anyway. Okay. Um, before we get started, let me just mention this. So, um, I, and I won't leave this up the whole time, but uh, we do we we do super chats, of course. So, if you would like to have your question read on air, I know I keep promising that I'm moving to. Okay, broke up, and during that period of where, where they were apart, she had some sexual intercourse with another man. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so I, I, I understand that there may be a certain degree of tension in that regard. I also heard rumors, although they could be nonsense, that she'd had she'd been involved with Chris Rock, but that's probably rubbish. But certainly, he'd, she'd had some she'd had some sort of relationship anyway. So one imagines there's a great deal of tension uh, anyway, and and then uh, uh, and and he feels kind of cuckolded and a beta male, and then th- this person is disrespecting his hoe. And by disrespecting his hoe, is disrespecting him, and right. uh, because it's his hoe is his his hoe, uh, and so uh, this results in him uh, losing his temper and having to go up there and uh, give him a slap. So that would be if you wanted to, to see it in terms of honor culture, then that would be it. But the way I would see it more is just simply they had this complaint a few years ago: Oscars so white. Because apparently African Americans were underrepresented among Oscar winners. This is despite the fact they only make up twelve percent of the population. I can't help right. but thinking that they weren't underrepresented. But anyway, uh, they were underrepresented among Oscar winners, uh, and uh, so they had. But this was very much Oscars so black, because it seems to me that it is the uh, the ascent of black street culture. I have to say, brawling, fighting, violence, uh, that sort of thing, uh, into the Oscars arena. So this was very much now Oscars so black and uh, my take on it is simply a scientific take which is that i had a a paper published uh last week in the journal Mm -hmm. uh uh, mankind quarterly uh called uh, with with my colleagues uh, helmut nyborg and emil kierkegaard entitled europeans have larger testes than sub-saharan africans but lower testosterone levels i gotta i gotta disavow this kind of scientific racism can't can't allow this on this holy show. All right, let's get back to Albert Camus, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and the world of intellectuals positioning themselves. So positioning for intellectuals takes two ideal and typical forms. An intellectual intervention may be an intellectual positioning or a politico-ethical positioning. So an intellectual positioning locates the agent primarily within the intellectual realm. It might identify a specific intellectual orientation, defend that stance, and elaborate on its significance. Claims about the intellectual Claims about the importance of and come down to claims about the originality or intellectual power of the intellectual orientation. And uh, maybe all about linking the intellectual to more important figures in the field, possibly a mentor. Politico-ethical positioning refers to a broader political or ethical stance which surpasses the narrow confines of the intellectual sphere. So intellectuals often locate themselves in relation to a sacred realm, in opposition to the profane world of the market, of party politics, of grubby everyday life. In the modern university, for example, academics often evoke a sacred realm and applying to higher academic values such as intellectual autonomy, truth, and excellence. So an intellectual intervention in and of itself does not necessarily involve a political, a particular positioning. Positioning only takes effect because of the agents operating within a particular context. So first you've got the 
effects of an intervention in terms of positioning, depending on the individuals who bring it about, on their already established status and on their position within the intellectual field. Second, the effects of intellectual interventions depend on those of the other individuals at play within the same field. Shifts in the positioning of one intellectual affect other intellectuals' positioning and self-positioning. So in the mid-1940s, intellectuals became increasingly convinced of the writer's political responsibility, and this made Gide's notion of art for art's sake as untenable. Similar ideas were once used in defense of collaborationist intellectuals, those intellectuals who collaborated with the Nazis, and this became regarded as pernicious. Then you have a new generation of intellectuals born after the First World War who treat Jean-Paul Sartre as increasingly insignificant. They turn to different authors. They propose different interpretations of the same authors. Foucault found inspiration in Nietzsche. Levi-Strauss Levi relied on Emile Durkheim. Once even Sartre's previous allies moved on to different intellectual traditions, so his philosophical program started to look outdated. Third, the actual effects in terms of positioning depend very much on the specific intellectual and socio-political context in which the intellectual interventions take place and on historically rooted sensitivity. So by arguing in Elements of Law and the book uh, Leviathan that the sovereign is the sole judge to assess a threat, Thomas Hobbes positioned himself in line with Charles I in the context of the ship money crisis, defending not only the king's right to tax people, but also his right, not the public's or their representative's right, to judge whether the Dutch were a sufficient threat to the crown to warrant increased military expenses. So the same type of intellectual interventions in different time periods bring about different positioning, even when the same people are involved. So the same intellectual intervention might generate different positions in different contexts. An author's self-presentation within the local field that is familiar to them might acquire different meanings and connotations in a different context. So even when intellectuals are carefully constructing and calculating positioning and self-positioning, not all effects of their intellectual interventions are within their control. So one extreme scenario is when intellectual interventions are posthumously reassessed by others in pursuit of their own intellectual agenda. So what appear to us now to be iconic literary figures or key intellectual interventions are not necessarily considered so at the time. So those who have been crucial in this process of remembering often had their own agenda, positioning themselves in the competitive intellectual and political arena. So at the end of World War II, Jean-Paul Sartre used the alleged non-engagement in politics of previous novelists as a foil to earmark his own intellectual agenda. Now, in the West, in the Anglo world, philosophy is dominated by analytic philosophy, which is supposedly unconcerned with past philosophers. Now, for all this, their disdain toward the history of philosophy, earlier British analytic philosophers had a remarkable interest in this subdiscipline. They repeatedly positioned their own intellectual agenda in opposition to what they saw as the dangers of foreign strands of thought. They coined the term continental philosophy, that, that bad philosophy by the French and the Germans. So all these Anglo analytic philosophers, such as Russell and Eyre, depicted the alleged model thinking of Hegel and Heidegger as causally related to the emergence of totalitarian regimes such as the Nazis, and they link their own preoccupation with precision, logic, and science to more responsible and liberal forms of government. And subsequent British-based philosophers such as Isaiah Berlin and Karl Popper, who did not, strictly speaking, operate within the framework of analytic philosophy, made their case for piecemeal liberal democracy by depicting German philosophies as pernicious, as they allegedly promoted a problematic notion of liberty, because they proposed, or because they proposed closed utopian schemes that were immune from empirical refutation. Well, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan is 
a, a totalitarian, almost a totalitarian uh, approach to, to government, and that's from, from England. So it's rare for a single intellectual intervention to bring about the desired effect. In most cases, several interventions often repeating the same position necessary to get a message across. So the networks of an intellectual comprise a large number of agents who often engage with him and confirm his position, even if they disagree or overtly hostile, because intellectuals often work more effectively in groups. A group strategy usually outcompetes an individualist strategy. So the status and recognition of individuals, of intellectuals, depends on where they acknowledge, which journals, which books, you know, which other intellectuals acknowledge them, precisely who acknowledges them, and what is the position and status of those who acknowledge them. Positioning is more effective when accomplished in teams. Teams are narrow at the networks. Teams of intellectuals cooperate in positioning themselves by grouping around a school or a research program. And they often use a label that make their work and agenda immediately recognizable. Teams are effective, but they come at a cost. The exception of the intellectual leaders, members of teams find it more difficult to position themselves as having an independent voice or being innovative. So the writings of the leaders will be remembered while the other works fade away. That team membership is crucial because positioning rarely goes uncontested. The intellectual might be able to position himself for a certain period of time. Eventually, rival intellectuals will mount a challenge, will portray him as outdated, insignificant, pernicious, erroneous, or misrepresenting his proclaimed position. So individuals who carefully position themselves often end up pigeonholed differently by others than having to extricate themselves from labels attributed to them. So teams capture the cooperative side of intellectual life. But what we call individualization is equally intrinsic to the realm of intellectuals. By intellectual individualization, we refer to the process by which intellectuals distinguish themselves from others, make themselves look different from them, and possibly unique. Individualization is achieved through careful self-positioning. It often involves conflict because the act of differentiating tends to place takes place through the criticisms of others. So almost every formal presentation of new intellectual work begins with a position statement identifying the work on which it builds, the work that complements and supports it, and the work by which other authors are contradicted and possibly superseded. People, and it's like, what do you want? Like, what is this movement about? Yeah, and I, I just wish that Louis had played more so up on, because he said how I describe Nick Fuentes is as a walking contradiction. I would have liked to see a bit more of the contradictions. Nick says this stuff about race mixing and about the white race, but he himself is Mexican. Louis didn't bring that up because, number one, that would have humiliated Nick completely and totally discredited him in the eyes of any white supremacist. And I think what they were wanting is for maybe people to come on board with that because um, so, it's completely controlled now. I'm not 100% sure, but he didn't grill him like with that. Um, in terms of like the Catboy stuff, that was never brought up, which I, I think he missed out on that a lot. The incel stuff is new, and I think that's kind of why the incel stuff wasn't in there. It's always been around, but they've really doubled down hard on it now. Um, but I wish some of that stuff would have been included in for sure. But definitely the Beardson segment pays off. In that was the best. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. The uh, Beardson segment in the Louis Thoreau documentary on America's New Right. So there's an article in Tablet Magazine, The Red Peel Prince, How Computer Programmer Curtis Yavin Became America's Most Controversial Political Theorist by Jacob Siegel. I read the whole thing. 
He concludes, after two years of COVID following the disintegration of the liberal state and the emergence of eccentric ideological impositions coordinated on what seems like an hourly basis by an invisible yet apparently all-powerful hand, which has no need to account for its nakedly visible contradictions and failures. The answer seems obvious. Either you see it, the cathedral, or you don't. So I have not found investment in the thought of Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Morbug, uh, worth, you know, just doesn't pay off. So I've never gotten much out of him. I'm sure he's, you know, it'd be interesting to have a conversation with. He usually goes under the name Manchus Mordbug. Just, just don't get uh, value for money when I, I read him or listen to him. When he's segment. When he's talking to Beardson um, uh, about, you know, you did this Nazi salute. He said, you know, the whole point of your movement is optics, like to not have any of this Nazi imagery or any association with white supremacy. You had one job, Beardson, one job, and you failed. That was a fantastic moment where he just really nailed Beardson to the cross there. Beardson spurred out, Beardson spiraled big time. Um, if you want to see our, our live reaction to that with all the clips, check out the link in the description for the gum road. There's other content on there as well. Three and a half um, hours. Yeah, I can't wait, can't wait to do that. So uh, what is knowledge? He said, whoa, I want to spend three months studying this. And then she got her money and she went over to Norwich and she spent three months and she read the whole thing and she wrote it all up and she handed it to a committee and in an hour and a half they sent it back and they said, you've got to be kidding. She said, well, I'm going to get my dissertation. I'm going to get green now, right? They said, you've got to be kidding. Of course we're not. This is the head of uh, the writing department at the University of Chicago. Going to give you your PhD. And she said, but, 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 but nobody in the world knew what this woman said. Right, they said. And we still wish we didn't know what she said. Because we do not care. And she said, but it's original research. She said, I guarantee you it's new. And they said, that's right. It's new and it's original. But it is not knowledge. And she said, that's ridiculous. It has to be knowledge. No, it's not ridiculous. She was living in a positivistic world where knowledge looks like this. In a positivistic world, knowledge is just built up over time. And anytime you find out something that people didn't know, you get to just add up to this model. And knowledge just keeps on growing and everybody's happy. And that is dead, dead. Well, mostly dead. Here's the model now. Sorry, these are people. These are human beings. There are conversations moving through time. And there's a bunch of people, and they get to say what knowledge is. And that horrifies you. Why would those people get to say? Why did they get to say? Especially because, historically, of course, they've looked just like me. <laughs> As my niece says to me every time she sees me, too male, too pale, too stale. <laughs> Why on earth would these people get to say what knowledge is? I get it. I get it. Big problem what they do. And that's a fact. These people get to say what counts 
as knowledge. The good news is they are changing. Way too long, way too late, way too slow, but they're changing. Great. That, that comes as a big relief. All right. Another book I've been reading comes from 2012, Intellectuals and Their Public's Perspectives from the Social Sciences. Professor Jeffrey Alexander, he's a sociologist at Yale. He's an academic entrepreneur. He, he founded cultural sociology, which is very different from the culture of, from sociology of culture. Okay, he's a founder of cultural sociology. So he says, being a public intellectual, it's not just a matter of telling the truth. It's a matter of performing. Politicians win power by convincing voters to believe. To Politicians win power by becoming symbolic representations of the hopes and fears and dreams of collective life. After they take hold of power and gain control of the administrative state, the new rulers cannot just order people about and expect them to obey. They need to make government meaningful to align the administration with the stories citizens tell each other about what they hope and what they do and where the best society should be. So the powerful couch their commands as requests and frame their administration as the last best hope of humanity. If they cannot, they end up just issuing commands. People will not see government as a symbol of their values. And in a democracy, they will take the ruler's power away. So individuals, organizations, and political parties move instinctively to hook their actions to the background culture in a lively and compelling manner. They work to create an impression of sincerity and authenticity rather than one of calculation and artificiality. They want to achieve verisimilitude, like make it real, keep it real, bro. Social movements, public demonstrations display a similar performative logic. So just think more about how much performance goes into our daily life and into the lives of people we watch on the news. Movement organizers are intensely aware of the media's organization's control over the means of symbolic distribution. They direct their participants to perform in ways that will communicate that they are worthy, that they are committed, that they are authentic, that they are determined to achieve acceptance and inclusion from the larger political community. So social actors are embedded in collective representations. They work through symbolic and material means. They orient themselves towards others as if they were actors on a stage, seeking identification with their experiences and understanding from their audience. So it's a struggle to fuse the speaker with the audience, to connect with the members of civil society through a good performance. That is what democratic struggle for power is all about. Those who want power must be elected. They will not be elected unless their performances are successful. The politicians and advisors put their heads together. They run focus groups. They do daily interpretive battles with journalists as well as with the other side. To become a hero, one must establish a sense of great and urgent necessity. The times demand Donald Trump. The moment is precarious and burdened with terrible significance. America has fallen on tough times. The American dream lies in tatters. The nation has fallen off the hill. We have been destroyed. Right? This American carnage ends right now. We have been polluted by the previous administration. We must be purified. We need a new hero. So Obama presented himself as having overcome great personal adversity to audition for this position of national hero. So he was born into a deeply polluted racial group from the perspective of majority America. He was inspired by an earlier African-American prophet hero whose rhetoric about the dream of justice had become deeply etched in the collective consciousness of Americans. So after Obama secured the nomination, joyous proclamations of imminent salvation were offered by African-Americans and circulated around America. His victory seemed to presage an end to race hatred and the realization of true, the true solidarity promised by American civil society. And in Africa, Obama's Kenyan relatives and their countrymen 
described his ascension as signaling redemption and the possibility of global solidarity. So to become a hero is to enter into myth. It is to cease being a merely mortal man or woman, develop a second immortal body, an iconic surface that allows audiences an overpowering feeling of connection to this transcendental realm of a nation's idealistic political life. So Obama grew the second body. He was no longer just a human being. He was no longer just a skinny guy with big ears, a writer, an ordinary man, but he became a hero to many, an iconic hero, a symbol who would not die. So most politicians cannot grow such a second skin. They may be respected or liked or deferred to, but they never develop a mythology. They remain a politician rather than myth. So they will become overshadowed and wimpified by their opponents, wounded in political battles, revealing their mortal natures. Jimmy Carter was wounded by Ted Kennedy's late primary run. He was injured further by Teddy's overwhelming and vainglorious speech at the Democratic Convention. Carter faltered in the general election campaign, watched helplessly as the once mundane Ronald Reagan grew a sacred and mythical second body. Bill Clinton versus George H.W. Bush ran this play in reverse. So decades before Richard Nixon's five o'clock shadow, not properly covered up by makeup, darkened and polluted him, allowing John Kennedy to shine like a bright young god during their decisive presidential debate. I remember I used to, when I was uh, basically bedridden by chronic fatigue syndrome in my 20s, I used to complain to, to my stepmother that she didn't listen to me. And a friend of hers said, uh, Luke is a wounded young god. If he were well and at UCLA, he'd have hundreds of people listening to him. Well, I've got uh, 12 people listening to me. So the blogger is not just a new kind of factual gatherer, but a new kind of interpreter, one who speaks openly and ideologically and personally, even while supposedly on behalf of the people themselves. But the point is, that's the way it works. You may not like it, but that's the way it works. They get to say. So they get to say, yep, you're right. That was new. I didn't know how many people were in 302, but it doesn't count as knowledge. It doesn't have any value to us. It doesn't count. The good news is this thing just moved, does move through time. The other good news is this boundary is permeable. Stuff comes in, and unlike this model, Stuff goes out. I like to think of academic conversations as sort of excreting as they go. Stuff gets left behind. It's not like this, where everything gets added up is always there forever. That's not the way it works. They go along for a while, they think of things for a while, and then they say, whoop, that was dumb. Don't think that anymore. They go along for a while and they say, whoa, we were doing that. Don't do that anymore. It's not this build-up model. This build-up model assumed that everything was right. We don't think that. We think a lot of what we think right now is wrong. We just don't know what the wrong is. And we don't know what better is. We want to know. We do. We want to get better at it. But in order for us to do that, you have to be dealing with the stuff we say is knowledge. That might not feel good, but that's how it works. So, important isn't going to do it. New isn't going to do it. Original isn't going to do it. Because I talk to people and they say, you know, people don't think this is bad. They're not publishing it. Well, and somebody says they don't think it's important. So you know what they do? They say, this important study. <laughs> well, no. What is it about B that makes it feel important? What is it? Tell me the words on the page. Well, there's, there's like a... Thank you.
Here's what I literally want you to do. I want you to literally, everybody in the room, I want you to literally go through 1B and circle the words, the specific words that are making it valuable to the audience, to the readers. What's the first verb you see? A word, not verb. What's the first word you see that makes it valuable? Nonetheless. Next. Accepted is, but actually widely. Accepted. Next. However, next. Although, although. Next. Inconsistent. Next. Reported. Uh, you have to speak the language of the powerful, right? If you want to be powerful, you have to learn to speak the language of the powerful. Next, anomaly. Here's my first piece of advice to you that you can use to make your writing better starting this afternoon. Spend 15 minutes a week for the rest of this year taking articles in your field, print them out so you have a hard copy, go through and circle every word in the writing that is creating value to the readers. If you see an article that you think doesn't have any of those words, send it to me. I'll give you my email. Send me your email and say, Larry, I found an article that doesn't do it. Here's what I bet. You will see none. I will see ten. Now, ten's five. I guarantee you five. Likely ten. What's going on? How come you don't see them and I see five or ten? You missed them here. I see them. I know the code. Every community has its own codes. The communities you're entering have their own codes. A set of words that communicates value. You must know the codes of the communities you're working in. And they are particular to communities. Some codes are shared among a bunch of communities. Some aren't. You've got to know. You've got to know. You spend 15 minutes a week for the rest of this year, you'll be doing two things. One, you'll be training yourself to look for the code of creating value. The other thing you'll be doing, if you're smart, is you'll be writing down each of those words and you'll be creating an invaluable word list. So that when it's a week before something is done and you're doing one of your revisions, you're going to do what? You're going to do the same thing on your own work. And if you can't underline ten words in the first two paragraphs, you're going to do what? You're going to go to the word list and you're going to jump them in. Right. Sometimes, sometimes it's that simple. Sometimes we take articles that wouldn't get published and in an hour we do things and they get published. Sometimes weeks. I'm not suggesting this is always magic, but sometimes it's magic. Because sometimes the problems are pretty simple. The problems have to do with these people. You have to know them. As I say to undergraduates who look at me and they say, why does it take six years or five years or even four years to get a PhD? Aren't they just learning more stuff? No. Half their time is spent learning more stuff. The other half is learning their readers. I will say this again. If you do not know your readers, the particular people in a community, if you do not know these people, you are very unlikely to create value and you are very unlikely to be persuasive because persuasion depends on what they doubt. If you don't know what they doubt, how on earth are you going to overcome those doubts? You must know them. It's not enough to know your subject matter. You've got to know your readers. 
Okay, so what is it about none? There's two things going on here then. One of them has to go on with the community of readers. Tell me the words you underline that has to do with the community. Of the words you underline in B. Which words have to do with the community? Widely. Accepted. Reported. Those are words that cued that there was a community of people who want to understand this. You don't have those words? You're not signaling any community. What do the other words do? Nonetheless, however, although, what do they do? They do. And find the synapse in your head that has that word. <laughs> Here's what's going on. He has been told or taught or learned that in order to have persuasive, clear, organized prose, you had to have what are sometimes called flow words or are sometimes called transition words. Words like because and if and unless and however and although and 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 but. All right? Are those words bad? Those words aren't bad. I mean, it's bad to have, is it bad to have flow? It's not bad to have flow. But they have nothing to do with value. Why? What's the difference between and and but in creating value? Imagine if you go to your readers and say, Hey, readers. Hey, community. Hey, community. I've read your stuff. I've thought about what you think. And I have something to say. Hey, readers, I've read your stuff. I know what you think. But you're wrong. Which one are they going to pay attention to? It's hard when you try to publish on journals because if you say the people are wrong, those are your editors. <laughs> here's, here's what I will say. And if somebody wants to do it right now, check it. He can name a journal. We will go to the, every edition of that journal in the last 20 years, and every paper will say that somebody's wrong. Everyone. Now he just, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> What's the difference? He says, and he's been, and I understand it. I can't go to these editors and say they're wrong. And I am telling you that every article published in that journal in the last 20 years has opened by saying, readers are wrong. First, you're looking at me like, I don't believe it. Well, look. What's the difference? Yeah. One way to put it is, you have to know the code. You have to know the code. If you say to the people who are the dominant figures in your field, you know what? I've read all your stuff, and you're idiots. It's not going to go around well. Right? Don't say that. What should you say to them? 
the dominant figures in their field. I say, what do you say to them? Yeah, but if you want to learn the code, what do you suppose the code is? Yeah, but the code is, wow, are you smart? <laughs> wow. <laughs> me, whoa, I'm just amazed. You are so smart. And you've contributed and you've advanced this. You've advanced this community through in fabulous ways. But there's this little thing you got here. No, they say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for appreciating that. You know? what, do you think, what do you think we have, Rob? And then you better have an argument, not an explanation. Do not explain. Argue. You're talking to people who, like, wrote this stuff. You don't have to explain it to them. You have to predict what they're going to doubt when you say they're wrong. So you say to them, you're wrong about this. And they say, why should I agree that I'm wrong? And you say, well, here's why. That's what introductions do. They give a quick version of why these people should think that they're wrong. And they say, well, okay. Preliminarily, I've read your first two pages. Now I'll start reading the rest of it. Why? Because you've caused them to think that your work might be valuable for them. Imagine if you go to them and say, wow, your work has been really great, and now here's something new that you didn't know. See, here's what happens. People say to me, man, if I say that they've done something wrong, I'm taking a huge risk. True. You think you're not taking a risk if you do this? What's the risk you run if you do this? Hey, really smart people, I've done all your work, I've studied all your stuff, and I have something I want to add. <laughs> no, 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 that's actually a really good reaction. <laughs> right? What's the risk you run there when you say there's something I want to add? We don't care. Or worse, I'd like to put my voice into the conversation. Say, we don't have any reason to listen to it. Let's pause on that one for a minute. The University of Chicago writing program is not real popular in the world of writing programs. And you can see why. A lot of people think we're fascists. I don't dispute it. Here's what we teach people to do. We say, identify the people with power in your community and give them what they want. That's what we teach people to do. Lots of people have said to us in some version or another, you're supposed to teach people to challenge the existing community. Well, actually, I just did, right? Notice that I did it inside the terms of the community. People say, why don't you teach people to have their own individual voice? And I'm going to say, I get that argument. I get the moral and ethical pressure to teach people to have their individual voices. But when I sit with somebody up in my office who's worried about their career not going anywhere, it can't be about their individual voice. It's about what's going to make it valuable to their readers. You need to understand that this program that we have is motivated by
by those people who have come to us and said our writing is not succeeding and the whole program is aimed at them. How do you make them, help them succeed? There's a ton of ethical issues involved in that. You're not going to, you don't really care. I just want to put them out there. There's also the person. Okay, let's uh, check out some of the leading thinkers of the modern age. That moment it was three and a half three hours. Three and a half hours. Yeah. But that was a really solid moment in the documentary. All the Beardson stuff was fantastic. The big stuff was really just, funny, too, when he plays him the rap song. Like, a Twitter is gay or whatever the song was called. I was like, you know. He looked completely, like, mentally ill throughout the entire thing. Like, he looked completely mentally ill, totally unhinged. Uh, And at the end, like, when he asks for Louis' validation, when he asks for Louis' approval, what do you think of the entertainer Baked Alaska? And Louis just says, like, I think you're poisonous. I think you're scum. You can just see the dagger put into Bake's heart. And there's just a moment where his face, like, he looks like he's about to cry. He looks like he's about to cry. And that was another amazing moment in the documentary. The Baked Alaska stuff optically really fucked them because, and I think the whole mistake they made uh, about this whole thing with Louis is to argue about semantics. Like, if the whole argument is about am I or am I not a white supremacist, you've lost. At yeah. a certain point, you have, okay, let's talk about the actual ideas that I, this is what I actually believe. You know, okay, Louis, use whatever you want, but here's why I believe this stuff. Here's, and be strong about it. And don't be ashamed of your views. Don't try and hide and run away from what you actually are. And because of that, because of their weakness, their timidity, and overall the ineloquence and stupidity of Baked Alaska and Beardson as spokespeople, it all fell apart. And, you know, Fuentes was humiliated. And a lot of these Groypers' uh, faces weren't blurred during the AFPAC part. People were, you know, those faces have been revealed. Uh, I think overall it is a complete disaster for the movement. I think it makes it look unserious to anybody who would view it. Because Nick somehow chose to allow the Groyper representatives to be Beardson, Baked Alaska, and Brittany Venti. Where was Vincent James? We, we found him in one fucking frame. Yeah. One frame where you have to pause it and you don't even recognize, like, you. Ba- I barely recognized that it was him. He was in it for one frame. Where was I your think, best spokesman, Vincent? Where was where was he? I think in our, um, in our, like, review, there was, like, a part where me and you were like, wait, what was that? And then we had to, like, frame by frame rewind it. And we're like, Oh, that's Vincent James? Because you were like, who the fuck is that? And then we're like, is that Vincent James? Like, he's like one of like the leads of America First. But also, I want to say the angle. So you said, you know, he had this like point of view or this like angle to attack America First, which is make it look like the new boogeyman, the new Richard Spencer, blah, blah, blah. A better angle would have been to be like, Look how ridiculous they all look. And there are people who are subscribing to their viewpoints, even though they're ridiculous. I think the entire essence of the... What makes making fun of America First funny is it's funny. It's not like we're like, oh, 
we, we get passionate sometimes about it. But it's like there's a lot of comedy behind it. And if Louis leaned into that, it would have made for a better documentary. At least in my eyes, I guess maybe for the, like the general UK populace, maybe not. But uh, it was still overall good. It was it was interesting. It was really funny. It was well edited too. Well to edited. Yeah, it was amazing to see Brittany Venti's filthy apartment also. And the cats? You know, her dishes, her cat's shitty litter box. Louis made sure to film it. He made sure to get all the dishes in the sink. <laughs> he made sure to do, like, I swear to God, you could count to ten. There was a ten-second close-up on a fly. In yeah. fucking window. And, like, I, I just was hearing Louis' voice in my head. Imagine the smell. Imagine, you know, that's what he's trying to convey to you without having to say it is imagine the smell of this bitch's apartment it was so funny she had to microwave the tea for louie oh she yeah. doesn't even have a kettle kettle stick she doesn't have a kettle she's microwaving it in the fucking not even like a stove kettle like you know what i mean like what is going on? And then her just going, because knowing, she, like, she is a troll, right? So seeing her going, you know, I didn't know what I was signing up for. It's just like, you know, come on, you were trolling. Was, just admit it, you know? So the beard sin uh, bit was the fucking, it was so keno, though. It was so funny because. He's, he's totally dysgenic, right? He's, like, hunchbacked. Like, he swear to God, he looks he's like the full feet shorter. Yeah, he has the Louis shirt on. He's like two full feet shorter than Louis. Louis's just completely mogging him. Like Louis's fucking wrist is like the width the fucking uh, Beardson's thighs. For fuck's sake, was like the size discrepancy. And Beard... <laughs> Beardson's just full on lollipop guild, full on Hobbit mode. His facial hair, like his mustache, was like uneven. His chin was like non-existent. And he just got totally humiliated. And, 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 and Louis like, who do a troll have such thin skin? It just, <laughs> you know, just fucking the, bogged him. And the, the, whole, the whole thing that, like, the like one and only question, basically, Louis had. Beardson was being very disingenuous with it, too. Where he could have just, like, neutralized it with one sentence. So the thing was, when they were leaving AFPAC 2, I believe... They're in, like, a convertible, and Beardson says bye to everyone and does, like, the Roman salute or whatever, right? Uh, the, the, you know, hot, the Hal Hitler thing, right? And it's clearly, like, he's doing it. There's a picture with him doing it as well. Now, so, so Louis brings this up, and instead of Beardson being like, oh, I was just fucking around because it's, like, it's, you know, it's offensive and it's, it's funny. That would have been easy, right? An easy, like, and then he would have been like, oh, you think, oh do you think that's funny? Like, yeah, it offended you. Who cares? Beardson acted as if he was like, so we found your, uh, your Mein Kampf book, you know, your manifesto, your Hitler manifesto on your, on your website or something. Like, Beardson was like, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. No, I wasn't. It was just, I, I was waving. I was waving. And then smash cut to him. In his live stream after kicking out Louis, saying, well, yeah, maybe it looked like it. Like, you know, like, it's just ridiculous. Uh, so what do you think? Like, no, it, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, it, it... Okay, that's going to do it for today. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.